Hi, I'm Rayburn Johnson. And I'm Steve Sensenick. And this is Beyond the Box. Here's your invitation to explore life outside the box of institutional religion. This is a place where there are no walls to restrict our search for truth as we embrace the ambiguity of defining our life in Christ. So unbuckle your seatbelt, recline your chair, throw caution to the wind, and get ready for the ride that is Beyond the Box. Welcome back to Beyond the Box, everyone. It is great to be back with you today. Um, Today, we're doing something totally, (laughs) I guess, outside the box, something totally different. Usually on this podcast, you hear either Steve or I converse and, and, and do some dialogue about different topics, or you'll hear us interview various authors and um, various theologians on different topics. But today, Ray is jumping outside the box and doing something totally different. Um, One of our listeners, Josh McDowell, who is part of a fellowship called A Place to Talk in Hickory, North Carolina, invited me to go down to their fellowship. And I went back just a couple of months ago and spoke to their fellowship about the topic of nonviolence. That's something we talk a lot about on the podcast. And he had been listening and he had been talking to his fellowship a lot about that. And so they had some questions and they had some uh, disagreements and just wanted to get some clarification. And so Josh thought it would be just a really neat idea to record a podcast the first hour of the fellowship meeting time to record a podcast just between he and I, um, just where we talked about the issues surrounding nonviolence, where the ideas come from about nonviolence, all of that kind of thing. And then to spend about an hour and a half after that, um, just fielding questions, listening to other people's input, listening to their pushback, listening to their agreements, their disagreements, um, clarifying things that maybe we said in the first hour that didn't make a lot of sense to people. And it was just a really great time. Such a different experience for me. Um, As you probably know, Steve and I have both been out of the institutional church for a number of years now. For me, I've been out probably uh, over six years now. And This was just such a refreshing experience for me because this fellowship, while they do in many ways still look like a normal church, the way they do their sermon is totally different. Instead of having one person stand in front of a group and just basically give a 45-minute monologue, instead, Josh, who's kind of the facilitator of the fellowship, um, he will prepare a topic that they're going to talk about. And of course, he's researched it and, ta- and thought about it and that kind of thing. But he'll release kind of the topic a week or two or even more in advance to let people know, hey, this is what we're going to be talking about. And he'll even give people kind of an outline of things that they can be thinking on so that when they all get together, they can converse in community so that they can dialogue instead of just listen to a monologue about about whatever they're going to talk about. So it's really just a really neat um a neat perspective, a neat angle, and kind of a neat way of doing church that I hadn't seen modeled before. So I just really appreciated the people at A Place to Talk. What we're going to do is, first of all, I'm going to let you guys hear the first hour of conversation between Josh and I, which will kind of set up the the question and answer and comment and dialogue session that follows. So I'm going to go ahead and introduce this part to you. This is the first part, and then I'll be back on in just, I guess, about an hour to introduce you to the second part. So Let's hear that roller coaster. Come on by. 
Come on up, Rick. Hey, this is weird. We've never, I've never recorded a podcast with a live audience. Have you? Um, yeah, I think really? so. But no, well, I've recorded somebody else's podcast, I, I should say. Oh, somebody else's. Well, I wanted, I thought it was, uh, I wanted to have one of these. So if y'all see that, you can get crazy. So, <laughs> I just thought it would be cool at some point in your life to have one of these. But hey, before we do it, remember next, uh, Next week we're here, we're here, everything's normal. Two weeks from today, what are y'all laughing about? You know, I was wondering if we had to applaud or if we could hoop and holler. You can do anything you want. So next Sunday we'll be here, we're talking about Genesis and Exodus, we're back in the Jesus Lens series. Genesis and Exodus next Sunday, two weeks from today we leave at 9 o'clock, we're going to Price Park. We're coming your direction. You are coming my That's direction. That's pretty close to you, right? It is really close. So we're going to go to Price Park two weeks from today. Three weeks from today, uh, we're going to do a big breakfast and have one service, if that's cool with everybody. That means everybody will bring breakfast. We'll have one little bit earlier service. Uh, before. Okay, so those are the announcements, except I've got one more. I need you guys to give the world's <laughs> biggest round of applause to a championship coach. One of, the, one of my best friends in the world is a championship all-star coach, and I wanted to give him this on the day that he's here. So uh, if you would... Give us a big round of applause for John Reed <laughs> Oh, that's an inside joke, and nobody knows what's going on except Shante, John, Hillary, and I, and the kids. But anyway, okay. So, uh, here, here we go. I, I have no idea how to start a conversation like this. Do we, like, don't even murmur? You do anything. You, you know, I, in my mind, I imagine... That this would just kind of be us, and uh, it, you know, at some point I'll have you do that. Okay. But anyway, <laughs> I had in my mind that I, I don't know what we're doing, guys. We'll we're just, always willing to be interrupted for applause. I mean, that's right. You know, no yeah, problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and then the second hour, it'll we have no plan. It'll be totally dialogue, totally discussion. You can ask anything in the world. Um, Ray, I brought him because I figured. That any question you could possibly ask, that those questions that you've asked, Bill, those questions you've asked over the last four or five weeks, and I said, we'll get to that four or five weeks, we'll get to that in three weeks, whatever. All those questions I didn't want to answer, I couldn't handle, Ray is the man. <laughs> Ray is here to answer all of those hard questions, so you fire away at Ray in the second hour. You're ready for that, right? <laughs> we'll see what happens. Okay. We're, I, I want to say, first of all, that we're in this together, because... Uh, I'm on a journey just like the rest of you guys. I mean, I might have been thinking about some of this particular topic for a little while longer, but um, I still have a lot of questions myself. I, I still have a lot of things that I've not figured out. I don't think that's the point, though. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's on a journey, so it's a good thing. And you know what? That's that, I mean, things we say is we're here to we're here. Uh, we exist to exalt, exalt Christ, a place where Christ is exalted. Talking is normal. Uh, priesthood is practiced because we believe that we're all equals. There's not somebody in this room who's the who's the pastor, leader, go-to guy, unless it's Ray in the next hour and you have questions for him. But other than that, we're, we're all equals. And the last thing we always say is everybody's journey is celebrated. Whether you're an atheist here going, I'm curious about Jesus, or you're a, a fundamentalist uh, believer that the Bible is inspired, infallible, inerrant, holy, all of that stuff, whether you're there or you're the atheist, wherever you're at, we're, we're, we're celebrating your journey, and we're glad you're here, and we're going to mess up your journey some way or somehow. <laughs> oh, but anyway, um, I feel like my, my brain is a billion different directions. I've been 
I've been in Florida, and I talked up, thought about all this, you know, months ago. But um, but let's just get started. I guess we just go ahead and just throw a question out there and talk about it. Well, let, let me say first of all that uh, this whole thing about nonviolence. I don't know how much you've set up since I've not been here, but um, a lot of this really comes directly from what you're talking about with the Jesus lens. I come at Scripture, I come at my walk with Christ um, in a very, through a very distinct lens when I look at Scripture, and that's Jesus. Um, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, you know, says that in times past, God spoke to the forefathers by the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, all these guys. But in this last day, um, in, in the, new, the dawn of the new age, the end of the old age, God has chosen to spoke through Jesus. And so, to me, Jesus is kind of my, he's my trump card. He's, he's what I use to look at all of Scripture. So, you talking about the Jesus lens, I think this falls right in the middle of that. Because a lot of what we're going to talk about surrounding nonviolence is looking at the words of Jesus and letting that trump the words of Ezekiel, Daniel, the book of Joshua. doesn't mean we don't have questions about those, and it doesn't mean that um, those questions aren't valid and that there's good answers to those questions. But it means that at the end of the day, we've got to go with what Jesus said. If he's our Lord and not these other guys, then we've got to go with what he said. So, Yeah. The, just, just that statement. The, it seems to me like we live in a time where Christians don't look at Jesus as Lord, but they either look at Paul as Lord or, or the Bible as Lord. And, and it's just it's that, that's tough to... I think it's because we've exalted those things to such a high, high, high level. Well, you're, you're going to probably hear me quote a lot of people, and I'm not trying to name drop, but I'm just trying to. I don't. Li- I like to give credit where credit's due because a lot of these thoughts aren't original with me. I've been influenced by a lot of people, um, but I know a lot of you guys might be familiar with Brian McLaren. But he shared something that I thought was very helpful in understanding the Bible. Most of conservative evangelicalism has looked at the Bible as a flat book. You know, it's, you, can, you can look at any part of Scripture, and it's all completely equal. You know, that's where we talk about when people start talking about inerrancy and fallibility. These are the kind of things they usually are talking about, that what you find in the book of Joshua is just as valid as what you find in the Sermon on the Mount. But he said, you know, a better way of looking at the Bible, a more helpful way, is to look at Jesus as the spine. He's the, he's the thing that holds the whole thing together. So you could look at almost like this is the old covenant that leads up to Jesus, and this is the new covenant that, <clears throat> excuse me, that descends from Jesus. But he's the apex of God's revelation. God, when, when Scripture talks about the Word of God, it's not talking about this. It's not talking about pen and ink. Um, what it's talking about is Jesus, and it says it over and over again. It enfleshes and cases the incarnation of the Word of God is Jesus. You know, John 1 covers that pretty thoroughly. I Sometimes I, I, I get that, that. That's probably the soapbox I've spent more time on yeah. in my life or, yeah. or in the last five or six years than anything. Yeah. But when you start telling people, this is not the word of God. Jesus is the word of God. Right. They're, they're, it, it, it's as if you have just said, worship the devil. Right. I mean, that's that's yeah. the way they treat you. Yeah. They they get they flip out and think that that you have said. Anyway, what yeah. was, that but, was that's the big thing. Yeah. I, I mean, I think what we've got to realize is Scripture is a revelation of the Word of God. But you know, Jesus told the Pharisees, He said, "You search the Scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. Yet there will point to me, but you refuse to come to me that you may have life." So it's almost like Jesus is saying, 
I'm the word, guys. You've, I'm what you've been looking for. This is the roadmap. Yeah. But, you know, it's like you went to Florida this past week, and you used the map to get you there. Sure. And once you got there, you didn't sit at the hotel and study the map. Right. Right. right? I mean, you enjoyed water parks. And yeah. You had a lot of fun. And I think sometimes we're so busy studying the map that we miss the territory. Right. You know, exactly. we don't ride the rides. I love the way Eugene Peterson <laughs> quotes that passage when he talks about you, you miss the forest for the trees. Yeah, I mean, exactly. you're, you're anyway. Exactly. So, okay. So when did you first in your, in this journey, when did you first start thinking about nonviolence? To me at all, <clears throat> I guess back in about 2002 or 2003, I was coming out of Bible college and getting ready to go to, to become a pastor. And I really began to get a hold of the unconditional love of God, the idea of unconditional grace. And little by little, that led me kind of down a road that deconstructed a lot of what I had believed. And I guess where the watershed moment for me was, I read a book called The Myth of the Christian Nation by a man named Greg Boyd. Um, Greg Boyd's a pastor at a mega church up in Minnesota. And during the 2004 election, um, he had all of these especially conservative contingencies coming to him, wanting him to support a candidate, wanting him to, um, to name issues from the platform and this kind of thing. And that really started bothering him. And he started thinking, you know, what's going on here? So he actually preached a series of messages called the cross or the sword and showing two different ways of living in the world. And um, that series of messages, which was maybe six or eight weeks, cost him a thousand church members. You're kidding. A thousand members left his church instantly because he started talking about this stuff in the sermon. We actually lost a thousand church members two weeks ago. <laughs> and this is what we have left. Man, you guys must have heard I was coming, right? That's um, right. But, you know, uh, this, this, this thing, I, I'm going to tell you, I, I've told you, Josh, we've been podcasting for four years. We've got listeners all over the, all over the world, and we talk about tons of controversial issues. I mean, things that I would have thought would have you know, flipped all sorts of buttons for people. But you don't get the pushback on anything that you get on this topic because it has a real-world application to it. So many of the things we talk about, hell, atonement, you know, Scripture, they're so ethereal, and yeah. they, don't really, um, they don't really mean something to your day-to-day -day existence. But when you start talking about nonviolence and a certain way of living, then it changes everything. Um, so for me, I, I read that book, and it gave me a lot of food for thought because it started saying, you know, what if we actually believed what Jesus said? Novel idea, right? What if, um, if we're going to talk about taking the Bible literally, which even the most fundamentalist conservative doesn't do, right. what if we actually took the words of Jesus at face value? What if we actually believed what he said? And the Sermon on the Mount is kind of like Jesus's magnum opus. You know, his that that's his, uh, you know, charter document, so to speak, of what his ministry looks like. And in it, he talks about you love your enemies. You do good to those who persecute you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, you turn the other. You go the extra mile. And he says, in doing this, here's the key to it. It's not just that you do it because it works. It's that you do it because it's what your father does. He says, this is the way that you become sons of your father who's in heaven. Because your father makes his rain to fall on the just and the unjust. He causes his sun to shine on the good and the bad. So if you want to look like him, you've got to love your enemies. And he goes on to say, this is in Luke 6 and Matthew 5. He goes on to say that um, most of the, the, the love that we see in the world is characterized by loving people just like you. Or people that, that have something to offer you. Right. 
but that the love of the kingdom, what actually makes agape distinct, what actually makes the love of God distinct. What makes us different from everybody else. What makes us different from everybody else is that we love those who don't love us, and we, we treat with respect, with love, and with dignity those that we really shouldn't. And that's what sets the love of God apart. So, I mean, and Jesus says, you know, what profit is it to you if you love those who love you? Even sinners know how to do that. I mean, mobsters love those who love them, right? <laughs> That's right. I mean, the mob is all built on familial, communal love. And, you know, you watch the mob, and sometimes you go, they've got something that's really cool because they, they really, really love. I mean, they really, you know, they take care of their own. They take you know? care of their own. But, you know, yeah, that's so actually. So what, you kill three people. I'll, I'll take care of you. That, that's actually not a very distinct thing, though, because if you think about it, that's what our entire, the nuclear family, you and your children and your right. wife. You take care of your own, right? Yeah. We all do that. That's a natural instinct. What is a supernatural instinct is when you take care of not only your own and not only the outsider, but your enemy. Jesus is saying that your love is actually defined by how you treat your enemy. And, and that is, it, if that's, I, I think that you kind of believe that is, that may be one of the biggest, most important messages of Christ. I think it is. And if it is... It affects everything. Everything. And, and you know, I've kind of been on a journey where I think you're right. I think this is the big deal. It's, I love people who treat me bad. I love people who hate me. You know, sometimes you see, you see an Amish family do that. And maybe I'm not using the right group. But anyway, you see a group of people, somebody comes in and they kill their family or they kill their kids, and then, and then they love them. And they treat them, they, you know, they... They welcome them into their home, and they offer forgiveness on national television, yeah. and that is so shocking to the world. And evangelicals go, eh, those people don't even have TVs. They're weird. Yeah, yeah. But what did it do? I mean, like that story you're talking about, um, the, you guys, I'm sure a lot of y'all remember the Amish schoolhouse shooting, you know, where, where a man walked in there, he told the teacher to leave, he told all the boys to leave, and then he shot, I think it was, I want to say 10 or 12 girls. And five of them died, and uh, several of them were severely injured, you know. Then he killed himself. He turned the gun on himself. And it turns out that what happened was he had, he had lost a child at birth, a daughter. And it had so bothered him over the years. He had let that bitterness fester to a point that he blamed God. And so he thought, if that's what you did to my daughter, I'll show you. So that's actually why he targeted those girls. Well, Basically, the way that story sets up is that, you know, the news media is going in there looking for the victim. So they're looking at this Amish community as these, as these victims. And they've had this role thrust on them by this killer of being victims. And it's almost like they flip the script and they change their role within the story. And instead of becoming the victims, now, instead of people talking about this man going in there, the whole country was going, what the heck are these people doing? The day what is that, wrong with these people? What's wrong with these people? The day that their kids are killed, they go to the killer's house to support his wife and to show <clears throat> to show the love of God to this woman. Because they realize, we just lost our kids, and we've got this huge community to help us. But you probably are going to be ostracized. So guess what? You're now part of our community. Whether or not you're Amish, you're now part of us. And you, you, you think that they... Do you think that when they went to their home, to her home, they said... We're going to treat you as part of our community if you'll convert. 
<laughs> well, now I will say that, you know, I don't want to hold the Amish up as the gold standard right, because, right. you know, there, there definitely are issues there, too. Don't get me wrong. Um, we've all got our baggage. Right? Sure, sure. Um, so, you know, I wouldn't say that they welcomed her in the community as one of their own necessarily. Yeah, yeah. But what they did do is they said, we're going to support you and we're going to do everything we can to make sure that you don't suffer as a result of your husband's decision. And guess what? When that man's funeral happened several days later and nobody else was shown up, this entire Amish community goes to his funeral. All of these parents that had just lost their daughter to this man show up at his funeral. So what did the news media do? All of a sudden, they quit reporting on just the murder. And now, instead of being this victim they that's start. just trying to you know, protect themselves from what's happening, they're actually like a protagonist. They're the, they're the hero of their own story. Yeah. So. It, it, it's beautiful. Yeah. It. Uh, you wonder, you know, stories like that, they're, they're, that's not the only one. There's other stories like that. Sure. And when you see stories like that, you find yourself in this nonviolence thought process. You end up saying, okay, now what about me? What, what would I do? And, and I get the question all the time, and I'm sure you do. Oh, yeah. All the time. You, you start telling people that you start talking about nonviolence, and you talk about forgiving your enemies and loving people who are persecuting you, and so you get that question. What are you going to do, Josh, when somebody, you've got a daughter, you've got three sons, you've got a wife. What are you going to do when some mad serial murder rapist breaks into your home and they're, they're right at the point of killing your daughter or shooting your son or, or raping your wife? What do you do? What, what, what do you feel when you have that question asked? I understand the question, first of all, um, because obviously this is the, you know, Everybody wants to take what you, when you talk about this topic, everybody wants to say, well, what's the logical outcome of that, right? I mean, where, where does this eventually lead? Um, I want to say several things about this. Okay. Um, first of all, <clears throat> I think the question, excuse me, I think the question is framed in such a way that it totally rules out the Spirit of God. Here's what I mean by that. Hypotheticals are... Hypothetical situations are set up so that you're between a rock and a hard place without, without any solution. Um, the, the real thing that kind of gets me about this question is if you say, okay, the person says, and you've got a gun in your house, so you could do something to stop him. So you say, okay, am I a good shot? Yeah, you're absolutely a great shot. Well, I shoot the gun out of his hand. Oh, no, 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 you're not that good a shot, right? Yeah, yeah. So, so I mean, it, it continues to be backed into a situation where the only two alternatives are you either kill the man or you end up letting him rape your wife and your children in front of you and then kill you. I don't think those are the only alternatives. I don't either. Um, I think that, I think that, uh, you know, I, let me give you an example. Jesus liked to tell stories. So let's use one of Jesus's stories. John chapter four, Jesus is, um, he's dealing with the woman caught in adultery. So this woman is literally caught in the very act of adultery. They bring her before Jesus, and the Pharisees, they think they've got him. The Pharisees and scribes say, Jesus, in the law, it says we ought to stone this woman. Um, but what do you say? So Jesus is kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place. I've either got A or B. A, I say, well, you're right. She broke the law. Stone her. And I end up looking just like you, and so my ministry is no different than what you're already doing. Or B, I end up saying, no, let's not keep the law of Moses. Let's let her go which means I've now broken the law and you can come after me. 
So they think they've got him. So Jesus gets down, and instead of being like most of us and giving a quick answer and, and you know, just trying to, trying to make sure he gets, comes up with something and sounds brilliant off the cuff, he stoops down and starts writing on the ground. And I personally think what he's doing is he's waiting for a word from the Lord. He doesn't know the answer at that point, I don't think. I mean, Philippians 2 talks about Jesus was emptied of his glory. Yeah. He didn't have all those divine attributes floating around. He didn't know everything. You know, he didn't walk on water because he was God. He walked on water because he was empowered by the Holy Spirit. In the same way, so I don't So just think he, like you and I, he had to hear from the Father on exactly, this. Exactly, exactly. So he stoops down and he's writing, and I don't know if he's playing tic-tac-toe. I don't know, you know, I don't know what he's doing. My mom always says that he's writing the name of the, the names of the men who had slept with her. <laughs> that's a, that's, uh, who knows? They were standing there with stones. Who you knows? Know? Maybe, you know, archaeological discovery will yeah, maybe. Or something. But anyway, um, so anyway, all of a sudden he comes up with this word and he says, you know what? Let him who's without sin cast the first stone. So they only gave him option A and option B, but all of a sudden from heaven comes option C. And I think sometimes because we predispose ourselves to answer that question, and we say, okay, here's exactly what I would do in that situation, what we've done is we've said, I'm not leaving room for the Spirit of God to give me a fresh word from heaven. Let me give you some examples. <clears throat> a man named John Howard Yoder, who's probably the most, he wrote the most influential book on Christian pacifism of the last century. It's called The Politics of Jesus. Um, and that actually led to a huge amount of work being done on Christian pacifism in, in scholarly circles. Then he wrote a little book to just for the everyday person, and it was called What Would You Do? Answering This Question. And the whole book is just real-life examples of people that have actually been in that situation yeah. and have, have committed themselves to nonviolence beforehand, saying, I don't believe whatever I would do in that situation, I don't believe it's ever right to kill, just like I can't believe... You know, I read the words of Jesus, and I don't think there's ever a situation I can get away with adultery. Right. I don't think there's ever a situation I can get away with fornication. Right. right? I mean, none yeah. of us would compromise on those things. Well, in the same way, I think that we have to make a commitment beforehand that we will solve a, that, that we will either come to a resolution um, nonviolently or we'll die trying. Right. That's what they call martyrdom. Yes. Jesus kind of promised that to us, didn't he? You know, there's a Timothy, Second Timothy three sixteen. Is that it? all who live godly in Christ Jesus will, will suffer persecution? It doesn't say might. Yeah. It doesn't say could. It says will. Exactly. It, so that, that's a scary passage. So in this book, he basically gives real world <laughs> examples, and I'll, I'll give you one example. There's a lot in the book, but one woman, she's walking in a park. She's made a commitment to nonviolence. She's walking in a park. She gets uh, it's getting towards evening. And she's alone, and she, a, a guy jumps out of the bushes, jumps on top of her, and is getting ready to rape her. So um, all of a sudden, you know, she's just thinking, God, what am I going to do? And all of a sudden, a word from the Lord comes and says, tell him that his mother forgives him. Now, can you plan that ahead of time? There's no I don't way. think you can plan that ahead of time. So he, she just looks at the man and says, you need to know that your mother forgives you. And he busts out into tears completely breaks down and just runs away. The cops catch up with him later, arrest him, this kind of thing. But if that woman in that situation had not had that word from the, that word from the Lord, who knows what would have happened? The, the problem is 
we have been taught that the way to hear from God is through a right, book. Right. And so in that situation, you either go, hold on, I need a word from God, and you go turn into the Bible, or you actually believe right. that the Spirit of God wants to indwell us and live in us. So the next time somebody says to me, Josh, imagine that a man breaks into your house and he's getting ready to, to rape your, your wife. I'm going to say, your father is proud of you. <laughs> I don't think you can turn it into a formula. Your, your, your mother forgives you. But, but let, let me say this no, too. No, no, but I, 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 think, yeah. I think that's brilliant. I mean, I think that's exactly right. And, and the whole backing you into the corner thing, that's every time it's the case. Yeah. Every time somebody asks yeah. that question, I say, well, I would, I would wrestle him to the ground and try not to kill him. I would, I would do this. I would, which, which I, when I was reading, I was reading about Moses and Exodus, and and it's two separate acts. When he, when he, he stops the uh, Egyptian from beating the Hebrew, one act. He kills him as a second act. Those were two separate acts. Yeah. And 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 we can, I can stop violence. I can put my arms around somebody and say, no, this is, you know, I'm not going to allow this. I can. I can shoot the gun out of this hand. I can shoot him in the leg. And yeah, that's violence, but but I'm I'm taking a stand that says I'm not going to kill anybody. Well, well, let me say this. I want to be real careful to I want to nuance what I'm saying yeah. because I don't I don't want you to misunderstand me. Okay. I personally and and this is just where I'm at. I personally believe in total nonviolence. Yeah. Um I, so you wouldn't shoot the guy in the leg. I, I wouldn't. And here's what I'm saying. I'm not saying that every single time you're going to get a word from the Lord. I'm not saying every single time you're going to get a way of escape. I'm going to say that you have to, that if you go this way, you're making a commitment that could cost you and your family their lives. Right. But this is not, this is not um, original with me. I mean, the early church, <clears throat> for the first 300 years of the early church, until Constantine, the church, the vast majority of the church, believed that nonviolence was as integral part of the message of Jesus as anything else you can come up with. And many of them, it cost them their life, and it cost them their entire family's lives. So I'm not saying, you know, I, I'm not trying to get an easy way out here. I'm saying, yeah, it, it could cost you your life. It could cost you your entire family's lives. But I think that um, I, I think that's part of being faithful to the gospel. Pa here, here's the difference. There, there's two kinds of pacifism. There's... Um, practical or what you want to call political nonviolence, and then there's Christian nonviolence. Those are two different things. They have two completely different motives. Okay, tell us the difference. If you're, if you're looking at political pacifism, you're looking at something like Gandhi. You know, Gandhi during, um, during the revolution uh, where, where India was trying to declare its freedom from the British Empire, um, Gandhi came on the scene and basically he had, sent, he had read Leo Tolstoy, who was a disciple of Jesus, you know, from the, from the 1800s. And he had read the Sermon on the Mount. He didn't see any Christians practicing this. As a matter of fact, the British that actually had him in bondage were Christians. So here's this guy who's being violently um, withheld from freedom by Christians, who's reading the Sermon on the Mount, this Hindu guy reading the Sermon on the Mount, and begins to actually believe it and practice it. We, we call that you call the British in that case Christians. I'm, I'm putting air quotes. With yeah, that, and, I, and I'm and I'm putting. I'm wanting to. <clears throat> Let's make that clear. Yeah. They call, they're, they're, they're Christians because they were, they had a religious Christianity. Right. They were Christians because they, they called themselves Christians. Right. But, 
But they weren't living the Christ life at all. Right. Okay, go on. I'm sorry. So Gandhi, <clears throat> excuse me, Gandhi, um, he, he begins to see some of the things in the Sermon on the Mount and, and sees that, A, there's no chance that the Indian people are going to be able to overthrow the British Empire. So maybe, just maybe, if we tried this Jesus way of nonviolence, it would work. And it did. They ended up, the British pulled out because, and a lot of people died. I mean, Gandhi said this, and then Martin Luther King said it a couple decades later. He said that blood is going to flow before we get our freedom, but it has to be our blood. It can't be the blood of our enemies. Which, and, is, which is what Jesus said. Which is what Jesus said. I says. mean, when, when he fixed this world, and, and people are going, it's not fixed. Well, yeah, but, but the cure was his blood. Yeah. His own and, his, his Not blood, his right? His yeah. blood, and and so when we're going through all of these issues, and we got all of these thoughts, and we're, I mean, you know, November's coming up, and we got all these these questions, and there's wars going on all over the world. Maybe the antidote is my blood. Yeah, and and, and that's what we have to. And see, this this is why what we're getting to. I realize <clears throat> that this is controversial. It's hard. I mean, I think picking up your own cross, you know, now we wear crosses around our necks and they have diamonds on them and they're gold and they're pretty and that's all well and good. But that's the equivalent in the first century of having, you know, an electric chair around your neck, <laughs> having right, a noose right. around your neck. Yeah. I mean, however you want to say it, it was an instrument crosses of torture. Crosses did not show up in the early church until when? Uh, it was actually post-Constantine. Yeah. It was when, well, we, that's a whole nother story, but Constantine, son of the cross that appeared in the cloud, all that kind yeah, of stuff. Yeah, right. Um but anyway, it, it basically was an instrument of torture. And the problem is, with evangelicalism, we have made the cross all about substitution. Jesus dies on our behalf, so we don't have to. <laughs> Jesus didn't say you're that. Going. Jesus yeah. said, if you want to follow me, you got to take up your own cross, deny yourself, and follow me. In the United States, we, <coughs> we think that... You know, we even talk about the inalienable rights in our Bill of Rights and how, you know, uh, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that those are rights that God's given us. Those are not Christian values. I'm sorry. Those might be American values, but they don't line up with the kingdom of God because the, the, the kingdom of God is all about if you're going to follow Jesus, you're going to deny your right to personal security. That's just the way it is. You're going to deny your right to personal prosperity. I mean, the, the early church shared their wealth, didn't they? I mean, everything was in common. They didn't call anything their own. Right. 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 I mean, and like I say, we're all still on this journey. Yeah. Have, have I arrived at this completely? Absolutely no. not. But I'm on my way. Yeah. Um, but anyway, I think part of the problem is, Josh, that we have we have turned the gospel into this thing that we use to secure our own personal security, our own personal prosperity, our own personal um, safety. And Jesus promises anything but that. Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, here's what it's going to look like. So the cross is not just about this propitiatory or substitutionary atonement. It is, it is an example that Jesus sets for us and says, this is what it looks like to live in the kingdom of God. You deny yourself, and you would rather see you die than your enemy die. Which, which is the opposite of what we teach. I mean, right. I, I, I mean, obviously we don't teach that anymore, 
But it's the opposite of what we grew up. We grew up believing that Jesus died on the cross so that we didn't have to. Right, right. And, and you're saying Jesus died on the cross to show us how. I'm saying, is there a substitutionary element? Yeah. I think there is somewhat of a substitutionary element. I think it's way overemphasized. Because I think that if we want to look at, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. We've reduced that to this thing of, unless you believe these propositions about Jesus, you're not, you're not going to be you know, in any kind of relationship with God. And, and, and those propositions, you don't, have to, you don't have to really live them. You just have to say, right. I believe them. You just have to assent yeah, to them. Yeah, you have to wear a suit and agree with everybody and say, exactly. yeah, I believe these Nod things. Nod your head at the right times. Right. Repeat the Apostles' Creed, all this kind of yeah. stuff. But instead, <coughs> Jesus, when he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, I mean, he's saying, I'm the way. I'm not just preaching the Sermon on the Mount. Yeah. But when it comes down to it and my enemies are closing in on me, guess what? I'm going to the cross. So really the cross, over and over in the book of Acts, you see the cross as man's work. It's not God's work. The cross, I mean, over and over again, Peter, Paul, all these guys say, you killed the prince of life. You killed him, but God raised him from the dead. So the cross is God's no to our violence. And the resurrection is God's yes to our nonviolence, showing that Jesus's way. See, if we if we don't believe in resurrection, this whole thing about Christian nonviolence falls down. It falls yeah, flat on its face. Absolutely. Because the truth of the matter is, if we don't believe in resurrection, then I better do the utilitarian, pragmatic thing and protect my thing, wife and family and protect myself. Because this my is the only life I have to live. Because this is it. But if I if I truly believe in resurrection then it allows me to let go of my own personal peace, security, comfort, safety, prosperity, and embrace the way of enemy love. Because the way of enemy love, I think, is the greatest challenge to the Christian church, and it's the greatest failure, at least since 300. For the last 1,700 years, it's been the greatest failure. Augustine comes on the scene in 400. I hope I'm not. <laughs> You're probably no, going to lose I, it. No, you, but all these I, things I, I, are I'm loving this every minute of this conversation. Augustine comes on the scene after, uh, I'll, I'll, just to catch you up to speed a little bit, because I know, I know that this is, we're covering a lot of territory here. Yeah. But um, first 300 years of the church, over and over again, if you go read the early church fathers, almost all of them talk about nonviolence and how, and many of them, um, you you could if you were a centurion if you were a centurion and you became a christian guess what that meant the end of your career as a centurion which probably also meant certain death right um and that happened over and, and over those guys the the first 300 years you read that and it's like you're reading a different it's like you're reading a different belief system yes it is not, not only do they not only do they have this nonviolence thought but they also they actually they actually take Jesus seriously when he says, be like me. You're going to do things that I did. You're going to do right. greater things than I did. That's right. They, they take, which, which, which brings me back to the, my brain constantly goes to how many times and how many of them said things like, God became man so that man might become God. Yeah. Might become God. And yeah. I know that's a whole different conversation, but, but they really believed that they were going to live like Jesus lived. Yeah. So, so for their story to end with death, that, that's what they were living. That, that they were living believing that anyway. Okay, yeah. so anyway, you're, so, then Augustine. So first 300 years, Christians are basically <coughs> nonviolent and heavily persecuted as a result. 
Um, then you have, in, in the year 313 A.D., you have this man named Constantine. Basically what happened was the, the empire was split up, the Roman Empire split up into all these different sections. To make a long story short, Constantine comes, defeats the other guys, takes power, and supposedly has this vision where he's, he's at this battle at the Milvian Bridge, which is an impossible battle to win. He's, he's facing the army of the other emperor at the time, and it's basically an impossible battle to win. So the night before, he supposedly sees in the clouds the sign of the cross that says, in this sign, conquer. So he paints crosses on all the shields of the soldiers and goes in, wins the battle. And so then, instead of you know worshiping the plethora of gods that the Romans worshipped, he subscribed to the Christian god. Right. So then the, Christian, the, the Roman Empire slowly, over a period of about 80 years, turns from being a secular state that actively persecuted Christians to being a Christian empire that by the year 380, I believe it is, A.D., it was actually illegal not to be a Christian. So they went from being the ones chased down by swords <coughs> to now we're using the sword to chase you down because you don't agree with us. So a sign shows up in the clouds, and, and that, that sign basically said everything that the cross has stood for up until this no day. No longer stands, yeah. Let's take it and yes. turn it 180 degrees against the message of Christ. And, and, and personally, I, you know, this is the legend that that's what he saw in the clouds. I think it was just a great political maneuver by Constantine because he saw, this, the, he saw these Christians as becoming more and more a part of the empire and saw a really good political strategy to get himself in power. So anyway, Constantine, Constantine comes on the scene, does all these things. Then you have Augustine. Augustine is a theologian in the 400s, the most single influential theologian outside of the Bible in the history of the Christian church. A lot of good stuff from Augustine, a lot of junk from Augustine. But Augustine basically incorporates the idea of, you guys are probably, are probably familiar with the just war theory, right? That, right. that there's certain criteria that if we can meet certain criteria to prove that going to war, we're doing it for a just cause, then it's okay. Well, and, and August, I mean, if, if we put ourselves in Augustine's shoes and we think this through, well, we, we read quotes on Facebook. I mean, I'm thinking about eight, ten years ago. Was Facebook around? It seems like it was. Uh, but I, how, how old's Facebook? But anyway, <laughs> you, you read, okay, you, wherever, you get emails. And, and the email was, okay, you're looking out your window and you see your neighbor's house and she's, she, somebody's getting ready to attack your neighbor. What should you do? Close your blinds or go out and fight? And, and, and when you read those things, you, the way we grew up and the way we thought, the way I thought, well, of course, you go and you kill this murderer that's coming after her. You go and you wipe his life out. And Augustine's idea was... If, you know, there's this country and they're killing everybody, well, the right thing to do. Right. You go and kill these, this 10% that's, that's in power that's killing the 90%. Right. Killing 10% is so much better than, than letting sure. the 10% kill 90%. So, so from, a, from an ecclesiastical, from a man wisdom kind of thought, you go, yeah, it makes sense. Right. Kill the 10 that's that's just. Well, see, by that's the time thing. by the time Augustine's on the scene, this whole this whole idea of the Christian nation has become the norm. Yeah. 
And I think that's where the that's where the problem is because that, this is why I want to draw a distinct line between political pacifism okay. and Christian pacifism. Yeah. I'm not asking the United States of America to subscribe to pacifism. Okay. I'm not doing that. I'm asking followers of Jesus to do that. That that's where I'm at. The reason being, I don't I don't you know Romans 12. If you read Romans 12 and Romans 13. I hate chapter breaks in the Bible because I think they're the worst thing that ever happened. Because right. these are usually, like, the the letter to the Romans is one letter that Paul's writing continuously, and we break it up into these little sections. But it flows continuously. Right. Romans 12 flows into Romans 13. At the end of Romans 12, you have Paul saying, um, don't ever return evil with evil, but re- overcome evil with good. Love your enemy. You know, if someone's thirsty, if your enemy's thirsty, give him something to drink. If he's hungry, feed him. Cetera, and and that chapter opens with living sacrifice. Yes, exactly. Lay down your life. Exactly. That's how it opens. And it right. says, and it says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then he shows you what that renewal looks like. You can't look at your enemy the same way. So then Romans 13 opens up, which is the same thought. He hasn't stopped. And he talks about being subject to the governments. Okay. And how we're to pray for the ones that are in office, we're to submit ourselves to the, to the powers that be, this kind of thing. So what he's saying in Romans 13 is, I'm not asking you to get in government and enforce these Christian policies. I'm not asking you to create a moral majority and go in. Does this sound familiar? Yes. I'm not asking you to create a moral majority and go in and legislate Christian morality in your country. I'm not asking you to do that. I'm asking you to live as Christians in the midst of a perverse and corrupt generation. I'm asking you to live the kingdom of God in the midst of them. And just like Jesus said, just like in a, with the parable of the leaven, Jesus talks about how leaven, when, when you mix it into bread, it's just this little bitty thing. But how it works its way through till it overtakes the entire thing, the, the whole loaf becomes right, leaven. Right. He says that's the way the kingdom of God is. You take this outpost of a bunch of radical disciples of Jesus, you stick them in the middle of empire, you let the empire keep doing what it may, but this thing grows just like yeast does in bread, and eventually the kingdom of God will be established and it will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. I mean, this is the the vision of all the prophets, that there's going to be a new Jerusalem, a new heaven, a new earth. What is that? It's the outworking of the kingdom of God in the midst of of this corrupt generation. It sounds like it sounds like while while we've already said you can't take the Bible literally, it sounds like you're you're in danger of maybe taking Jesus' words literally. Well and, like and, actually believing can I say something? Yeah. Um, I don't think you know <coughs> in the in the Bible it never talks about not being violent. It says do not kill. But if something was happening to someone I would walk right toward it in my heart. I don't know the outcome, but sure. that is not going to happen to my neighbor. Sure. If I, if anything, I don't want to kill anybody, sure. but I would not stay back from it. I would have to go forward. Well, Pat, here's part and, of it. And let Jesus, the outcome is God's. I don't know. Sure. You know, you know sure. I'm sure you remember the story. We're driving in the youth van. We've got, I've got a bunch of teenagers with us. We, they see a fight. They say, Josh, there's a fight. There's a man about to beat a, he's hitting a woman. And so I park a hundred yards away and I run and I run to that fight. And I, I literally, all I did, I didn't know what I was going to do. I stepped up there and I said to him, sir, if you've got to hit somebody, please hit me and not her. 
and immediately everything changed. So I'm with you. I, I don't, yeah. I mean, I was stupid maybe, violence. but yeah, it wasn't violence. Well, I ran to it to stop it, but. But it could turn into uh, yeah. I don't know. It, well, what, what I want to say, I, I, I totally hear what you're saying. Okay. I want to make a distinction. When people hear the word pacifism, what they hear is passivity. Yeah. I'm Absolutely not talking not. about passivity. Yeah. No. A big difference. I'm talking about you actually place yourself, Christian nonviolence and passive pacifism, passive yeah. pacifism are two totally different things. I'm not talking about you stand at a distance while someone suffers. I'm talking about that your call to follow Jesus calls you to stand as a human shield in front of that person, okay. but not to use violence in doing so. Yeah. Um, I, I've got a friend, Dave Andrews, that you saw on the podcast. Um, he lives in Australia. He's really, really cool guy. But anyway, Dave, um, he has all sorts of different stories where he's lived this out over a period of decades. But one in particular that hit me was um, he was walking down, he was walking down a street in the city that he lives in, and he saw a gang basically beating up this guy in an alley. So while the normal Christian who would believe, you know, wouldn't believe necessarily in nonviolence, probably would have either just called 911 if they had their cell phone with them, or if they didn't have the ability to call 911, they would have just kept on walking because they're thinking, I don't want to get killed too, right? Dave goes over there in the middle of this gang beating up this guy, not knowing anything about the circumstances, and just starts talking to him. This, this dead-end alley with nobody around, nobody's going to witness it, and just begins to engage them, knowing that he could end up dying as a result. Yeah, right. But his thought was, I can't let that person die without getting involved. I can't let that person get hurt without getting involved. Now, that the ended up, the situation, the guys, you know, they just cussed him out and moved their way on down the street and let the other guy go yeah. uh, and, and stop beating him. So, but it, but the point is, it could have cost him something. Sure. But he chose to get involved anyway. So I wanna I wanna separate myself as far from passivity as I can. I am not at all talking about you stand you stand aside while totally somebody d- does something violent. Well, Two totally different words. Right. I'm sorry. Define violence. I, personally, I would say any um, anything that would be detrimental to the other person and violence. I, you know, I, I think violence can even be, um, I think language can even be violent the way in which you use your language. I think your language with your kids can be violent. I think your language with other people can be violent. Don't, my kids are in the room. Don't tell them that. <laughs> but, but I'm, what I'm saying is I think violence, it's this, I think it's a, uh, our, our entire system, the system that we live under is really built on an undercurrent of violence. It really is. I mean, from the clothes that you wear that usually are made in some sweatshop where some kid's 12, year old, 12 years old and uh, not getting paid a fair wage and not getting a day off, um, from that to the, the chocolate that we eat that's picked by people on the Ivory Coast, kids again who are being beat and sold into prostitution. I mean, our, our, whole, our whole economy, everything really is based on violence. And I think Jesus is pointing out to us and saying, you've got to find an alternative way You've got to look different than the world, because if you don't, what's the distinction between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world, right? Exactly. And, and okay, so the, the idea here is that Jesus is calling us, my belief, your belief, is that Jesus is calling us 
to actually believe what he said, to actually believe that there is a, I think those stories about, about the, um, the, somebody slaps you on the right cheek and the, makes you go with them a mile. I think every single time he doesn't, he doesn't say be passive. He gives a third option. Okay, let, let me speak to that. Since okay. you brought that up, the, um, the turning the other cheek, going back to the passivity thing. Here, here the, 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 um, Walter Wink, who was a great scholar, just passed away back in May. Great man. He, he wrote a series of books on the powers, talking about the, the use of the language in the New Testament on the powers that we've always you know, translated as demons and all these kinds oh, yeah. of things. Well, he did a whole thing on the powers. And in, in the course of that study, he talks about Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And he really shows that what Jesus is talking about there when he talks about turning the other cheek it is not a passive, I'm just going to stand here and let you beat me up. It is actually a political statement that he's doing. Because here's what, here's what it was. In that culture, if, um, if you had a slave and you were going to, you were going to reprimand them, you were right. going to slap them, you would take your offhand, your backhand, right here, and you would slap them with your backhand. Because you reserved the front of your hand for equals. You would only use the front of your hand for someone that you deemed to be on the same level as you in society. Okay. So they would backhand a slave. By you turning the other cheek, you're forcing that person to treat you as an equal. Right, right. You, you are counter, you're countermanding, you're undermining their, um, their statement that says you're less than me and you're saying, no, I'm not. But you're not doing it through violence. Right, right. You're choosing to say, if you're going to be violent to me... You've got to treat me in the image of God the same way that you are. You're offering a third option. You're offering a third the, option. You, you get back into that corner. you got A and B. You say, no, there's also C. Okay, so we're going to take a break and eat breakfast now. And when we come back, it'll be totally conversation. We'll just let you take over and start asking questions and beginning dialogue. Does that sound good to you? Okay, so now you're kind of set up for what's to follow. And let me just warn you, what is to follow is really fun stuff. However, there's a lot of uh, a lot of disagreement, a lot of pushback, which I totally expected. And it was actually just so much fun because there were so many people that completely disagreed with me and, and really had some strong uh, statements to say. And yet I have to say, I loved it because these people were so genuine and they're while, while you'll hear some um, passionate discussion in the next hour and a half or so, I just want to tell you that after we shut off the recorder and the, the service was over, I just hung around and talked to a lot of these people and some of the people, I, I would say probably two of the people in particular that were the most um, that gave the most pushback and were in the most disagreement with my perspective were two of the people I ended up liking the most and just had so much in common with and just enjoyed talking to them after the fellowship. Um, it was just a great time. I thoroughly enjoyed myself. So I'm going to get out of the way and let you guys hear this great discussion that's to follow on the topic of nonviolence in the ministry of Jesus and in the believer's life. I'll, I'll uh, catch up with you in just a little bit. trying to think there, there are a few people that are in this hour that have not been in the first so let's try to do a real quick recap and then we'll just throw out let you start asking questions um i'll recap and then you fix you help me uh you you've leave you put in what i've left out the recap is basically um the idea jesus came 
He, he died on the cross, not so that you and I could... Um, ah, I'm trying to think about the best way to say this. <clears throat> Jesus didn't come... Well, I mean, it goes back to the atonement so much. I mean, what happened on the cross was not the Father saying, I'm so angry at all of y'all, I want to destroy all of y'all, and because of my anger, and I want to whoop you all, but I, but I love you, and I can't whoop you, so instead I'm going to pour out all of my wrath and all of my vengeance on Jesus on the cross. That, that's the idea that I've been taught all my life. That's the idea that I, I reject in total. I say that's not at all what happened. Jesus, God the Father, did not pour out his wrath on Jesus on the cross because he wanted to destroy me. We, mankind, poured out our wrath on God on the cross. And God said, I'm going to show you how to live. And I'm going to lay down my life for you. And the idea is... That this nonviolence, which is not passivism at all, it's, it's, I'm sorry, not passivity. We're not being passive about this, but we're just not choosing not to act back in violence. And so what Jesus did on the cross was an example to us, and you and I can, you and I can stand against our enemies by loving them and saying, if somebody has to die here, I would rather it be me than for it to be my enemies. So that's kind of a recap. Help me. Yeah. Recap anymore. Yeah, that, that's great. I, I think at basically at the end of the day for me, it comes down to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount where he talks about loving your enemies, turn the other cheek, do good to those who harm you, this kind of thing. That that is kind of, that sets the, that sets the focus for his entire ministry and then that he actually lives that out on the cross so that, He's not just teaching us a way to live, but he demonstrates how to do it. So the Sermon on the Mount was him telling us how to live, but the cross was him showing us. And I think the problem with evangelicalism is we focus primarily in the Gospels. We focus on the last week of Jesus' life. We read Paul's letters. We use Paul's theology. And all of the teachings of Jesus kind of go by the wayside. A lot of people actually consider those Old Covenant. I don't know about you, but in Bible college, that's something that they... they, uh, that some strands of Christianity will actually teach is that the that, Sermon on the Mount was Old Covenant? That, well, or that the Sermon on the Mount was Jesus upping the ante to show you that it's impossible to live that way and to draw you to him by grace. You know, I shook my which, head. I shook my head and said no. But after I heard you all the way out, yeah, that's pretty much you what heard I too. taught. Not only is that what I heard, but I almost... I think I taught that. Yeah. You know, we would present the gospel with the Ten Commandments and say, you know, you can't, you can't lie, you can't steal, you can't cheat, you th- can't think about somebody in a, in a sexual way because that's like committing adultery with her in her mind. And Jesus is up in the ante to open the ante to show you that it can't be done. Right, right. And, and you know, yeah, so, okay, yeah. I've heard that that's too. The prim- that's the primary, unless you're of the Anabaptist tradition, like Mennonite, Anabaptist, Amish, <laughs> The primary way that people look at the Sermon on the Mount is that Jesus is upping the ante of the law in order to show us that it's impossible to fulfill, to drive us to a place of neediness so we'll receive grace. I believe in grace. I be, I, all of that stuff. Um, I believe God's love is completely unconditional. But I, I think that the Sermon on the Mount is showing us what it looks like for us to love unconditionally as well. So. So now, and let me first of all say I don't oh. have all the answers. <laughs> I was kidding. Yeah. This is. I 
Sure. Let, me, let me say one thing before we go. I, I, I wrote this down. I was supposed to say it. I forgot to say it. Let me say it. Right, here's three things. Three things. Here you go. Number one, God's love. Remind yourself. Oh, here. I actually have it up here. Watch this. Here we go. Uh, three things. God is love. He loves the person who just said something that frustrates you. So if you're sitting out there and you're angry and you're going, oh, this is so nuts. This is, this is terrible. Hey, remember, God's love. He loves you. And he loves the person that just said something that really ticked you off. Number two, we are all seeking to know and understand truth. Okay. What I want to say by that is conflict is healthy. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with, with Bill and I. I, I'm sorry, Bill. I use you as an example because you and I do this a lot. Bill and I say things, and he says something, and I go, Bill, that is the most ridiculous, crazy thing I've ever heard anybody on the face of the earth say. I, I totally disagree. And he says, well, Josh, I think the same thing of you. And so it's totally conflict. But here's the deal. Here's the deal. I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, that Bill and I actually love each other. We actually trust each other. And, and I'm allowing Bill's friction with me to sharpen me and change me and he's allowing my friction with him to to fix him because he needs lots of help does that make sense okay so number one god's love number two we're all seeking and conflict conflict with trust is a beautiful thing conflict without trust is just politics we're we're not looking for that and number three uh, questions are better than answers you say, Josh, I really want to straighten you guys out and tell you something that you don't understand. Remember this when you're dealing with anybody. Questions bring conviction. Statements of anger bring conflict. It's just going to start a fight. So, so think of ways to put this into a question form. If you find yourself angry and you're frustrated, go through these three, three, three things. I'm going to leave them up there. God's love. I trust. We trust each other. We're searching for truth. And I can do more with a question than I can with an answer. Does that make sense? Okay, now, we'll start with Deb. Her hands was up first. About the um, Sermon on the Mount, up in the ante. That's a cool. <coughs> I, I really think, like, the, the law, they had, it was there. God showed it. We couldn't do it. Blah, blah. The, the Sermon on the Mount is like what we... We are becoming that, where we will live like that. If you walk in the Spirit, whatever that means. Because I'm a person, and through the years, I could look back and say, whoa, I'm, diff- I'm so different now. But I'm not done. Yeah. And I think the Sermon on the Mount is, I don't know how long I'll be on this earth, and I doubt I'll ever really make it, because maybe I will in a moment. He will have me and he's done it before zip it and and something else and he is there at that moment but i can't promise that because sure. like you want you are dedicated to be that i wish i could be that but i am well let, let me uh, let me clarify that i'm exactly where you are okay okay i'm not there uh, have i has has someone broken in my home and threatened my family absolutely not I don't want to be a hypocrite and say I've done this. <clears throat> um, but I, what I'm saying is the same thing that you're saying, that my aspiration is not to ignore the Sermon on the Mount, but to actually abide by the Sermon it's on the amaz- Mount. It's an amazingly impossible thing, but we know that you know, we it, can do the impossible. Ex- Bingo. Don't Bingo. you? It's amazingly impossible. You're absolutely right. I completely agree. And that's why it's so beautiful. It's kingdom living. It's kingdom living it's because you can only do it by the Spirit. But I, I am 100% with you. I think that 
what we're talking about, this is why there's so much pushback, is because it does sound impossible. And yet it's what Jesus calls us to. So, or at least I believe, and, and I want to be careful, you know, um, I, I am a very passionate person. Josh has talked to me enough to know that. So sometimes I can come off as being dogmatic. Please don't take me that way because I, I ask all these same questions. I'm very much a conversational person, but many times I think out loud. So if I make statements that sound dogmatic, they probably aren't. <laughs> I'm, with, I'm with you on the journey. I, something, something Deb said reminds me of, and I don't know who I first heard this from, but I love reading the Ten Commandments not as rules that you abide by, but future tense promises. When you know me, when you're living in a relationship with me, you will not commit right. murder. Right. You will not commit adultery. So you're growing to the point you're going to keep the law just because you're keeping a relationship with me. I think this is one of the misnomers with, with the whole idea of the law. Um, I went through the radical grace message. And I, when I was in an institutional church and I was preaching, I preached the radical grace message. And I hated anything that smacked of law. Anything. The problem is, Jesus, though, when, when he came, did he get rid of the law? Well, yes and no. He got rid of it in a sense, and yet he replaced it with a new law, the law of love. So it's basically anything that love wouldn't do, you're called not to do, right? So now does that mean that I'm always going to get that right? Absolutely not. Probably before I leave here today, I'll probably end up repenting in the parking lot <laughs> for, for not having a right attitude or saying something out of the way because I realize my frailty. Um, but simultaneously, my aspiration is to walk in love. And I don't think I can simultaneously walk in love and walk in violence towards you. I think those things are mutually exclusive. When, when Jesus was in the temple, he was pissed. Now, is that violence? Great question. Violently. Great question. So the question, the question is, what about the temple? The overturning the money tables and all that. Um, fascinating thing is, if you... Jesus, and this this could open up a whole can of worms, so I want to be careful to give a brief answer. But um, Jesus was very much, he, you know, he's our prophet, our priest, and our king. He was a prophet in the line of Jeremiah. Now, if you go back and read Jeremiah, it's interesting when you get into the whole hell discussion, which I'm going to try not to open up here. But Jesus is, yeah, just there it is. <laughs> Jesus' use of the word Gehenna, which is Jesus' word for hell, what he uses for hell. Every time he uses the word Gehenna, he does it um, by quoting Jeremiah. Jeremiah has this fascinating scene where he goes to the temple before the Babylonians come to invade Jerusalem, destroy the temple, and take them off to Babylon. Jeremiah goes in there and destroys the pots as a prophetic act of destruction. He wasn't cleansing the temple. He was destroying the temple. Um, Jesus does the same thing. He comes in. He actually quotes Jeremiah 7 in the temple and says, you, my father's house is to be called a house of prayer for all the nations. You've turned it into a robber's den. And then he begins to drive out the animals. Now, what is he doing there? First of all, let me point out, it never, I don't believe Jesus was being violent to any human being. It never talks about him whipping a person. It says he got a whip. What was he doing with the whip? If you study that out, there was actually like a cord that they would make. It was like two or three strands that they would use to drive the animals that were, because when you came, little backstory. When you came to Jerusalem for Passover, if you were a Jew, you were required to be in Jerusalem come Passover time. So at Passover, you're coming from miles and miles away, somewhere else in the Roman Empire. 
So are you going to be able to bring animals to sacrifice for the Passover? Probably not. So what do you do? You go to the temple, you buy animals that they have on sale at the temple for a much greater price, I might point out, and you use that animal to sacrifice in lieu of one of your own that you left back home. So in order to get all these animals, you can imagine, I mean, there's thousands of people in the temple in Jerusalem. Huge place. So you've got thousands of animals being sold at the temple come Passover. So what do they do? They use this cord to drive the animals into the temple. Jesus comes in. Not only are they, are they overcharging for these animals and overcharging, you know, extravagantly for all these sacrifices that people had to make, um, but they're, you know, they're making, a, they're making a pretty good profit at it, let's just say. So Jesus goes in, and I think he's falling into that Jeremiah tradition from Jeremiah 7. He is not making a prophetic act of cleansing the temple. He is prophetically destroying the temple. He prophesies this in Matthew 24, Mark 13, all these different places where he is actually, he, he's actually warning them, because you are subscribing to violence, warning the zealots in particular, you, Rome is going to Rome is going to take you away, and they're going to destroy your temple. There's not going to be one stone left upon another. They're going to take this whole place down, and then your nation is going to be destroyed. He kept warning them of this. He said, "Because you didn't recognize the way of peace," he actually says this. I think it's Matthew 24. Because you wouldn't subscribe to the way of peace, then there's not going to be one stone left upon another. This whole place is going to be destroyed. So he's prophetically, I think, destroying the temple system by doing that, but he's not using violence to a person. The only thing you could say maybe he was being violent to was an animal, but think about it. He's actually driving them out of the temple. What's going to happen to them? What's going to happen if they stay in the temple? Right? I mean, they're, they're going to they're be sold for sacrifice. So and We're not at all saying... I'm not, not at all I'm, a vegetarian. I'm not a vegetarian. No, oh, man, I'm just saying... I, by the way, I forgot to say it. Uh, we're going to eat 100... Every every man who wants to join us, eat 100 shrimp Tuesday night at 7 o'clock, red lobster, endless shrimp. Uh, that's a little advertisement right here in the middle. <laughs> Guys that want to do it with us. Hey, by the way, at the, after that story, right after that story, the children come to Jesus and he's playing with the children. Yeah. If he was being violent to their mom and dads, right. there's no way kids would have ran up to him. Right. Uh, Simon. <laughs> Liz, Ben, Liz. <laughs> no, I, I kind of want to go back to the thing that you said about love because I think that Jesus dying on the cross is a means of fighting for us, not as a means of punishment or, or pouring out his wrath. I think he's fighting for us. You know, and I'm going to bring a little psychology into this, okay? So, as somebody who has experienced various forms of abuse in my upbringing, I had a father who stood by and didn't do anything. But I think that it's a gift of love from God that he gave me a husband who thinks differently than you do, sorry. And he will do anything to protect my safety, like sure. to protect me in any means. doesn't guarantee my safety at all. But it's, to me, that is love, is giving me somebody that will protect me sure. when I learned that I wasn't worth protecting before. Sure. You know, and I think that, in essence, you know, what Jesus did on the cross was fighting for us. You know, he w he was fighting for us and yet not using violence to do so, right? Well, sure. I mean, he I was mean, he was doing whatever whatever means were necessary. Sure. And I want to I want to be careful to like with your husband. I think that's beautiful what you just said, and I want to be 
I want to be careful to. I'm sorry, I'm really distracted over here. <laughs> We're not going to call any names or anything, but right, Deb, turn off the phone. Yeah. <laughs> like for instance, you know, I, I was. Sure. Liz basically said that she's thankful that in in a situation where where she where she saw somebody stand by and allow her to be uh, to be abused, that she's thankful that that Ben would stand up and fight to defend her. And something that I would say is I would stand up and say, if somebody's wanting to hurt Shantae, I would stand up and say, hurt me, not her. Take it out on me. And I think that's what Jesus was saying. I mean, there's a very deliberate experience where I had somebody verbally assault me. I mean, a family member. And he was the one that stood up and said something. That wasn't violent, but he no, was protected. No, absolutely not. And I would do the same. violent words, sure. but they were necessary. <laughs> well, no, they were necessary for the situation because of because of the situation. Sure, right. And I think everybody's situation and everybody's journey is different, especially, you know, the human experience and especially their situation with God. I think I think that things are different, and I think different, different actions are different, whether it's standing back and allowing things, or saying something, or physically doing something. I think that it's different for different people. Let's go to Jerry before he gets hurt. I, I was just going to say, violent. When, when I say violent communication, let me be careful, because Jesus was, he was down around harsh at times. So when I talk about violent communication, I'm not talking about that you can't be passionate, that you can't stand in the face of injustice and call it for what it is. What I'm talking about is deliberately hurtful words. Del- I'm, I'm talking about... Um, yeah, which I think all of us would agree with. When I talk about violent communication, but I'm not talking about, you know, it can it can almost make you sound, this is the hard part about doing what we're doing in a two-hour period, because this is something that for probably six years I've been wrestling with. So to try it in two hours encapsulated is pretty tough. But um, I don't want you to think when, when I leave this place that I'm a spineless, passive follower of Jesus. I'm far from that. Um, I just don't think that I, I don't think violence is something that I'm called to. Now, could I fall into that? Absolutely. I mean, I can fall into all sorts of things. I can't tell you exactly what I would do in a given situation, but I can tell you what I would aspire to and what I believe Jesus calls us to. Yeah, I just think every situation is different, and we don't know until we get there, really. Jerry? I understand the new covenant, and I'm glad that we live under grace and not the law. But it seems to me we, we confuse some things in, in assuming that Jesus came and gave us a totally new covenant because in, in Matthew chapter 5, 17, Jesus says, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle, which means absolutely nothing, shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Now understand that we may argue that Jesus fulfilled all that at the crucifixion. Whosoever shall break one of these least commandments shall teach men so and so and it goes on, but it says uh, you have heard it was said in time of old, thou shalt not kill. And whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause uh, without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Now that's key to me because there is cause. And from the time of the fall from the garden, man has been at what I understand to be enmity with God. In other words, until we get back to God, 
we're we're outside of his whatever. And and it seems to me that until then, you know, if we could wave a magic wand and if Jesus going to the cross changed the whole world at that time, then there would be peace. But I'm reminded of an art, and I understand the difference, and I appreciate your differentiation between governmental and and personal Christian, totally. But I believe that I believe that it was the Holy Spirit who directed David amidst everybody else, directed that rock to the jaw of Goliath, and then he went over and cut off his head. I believe it was the Holy Spirit who gave Washington the wherewith to to cross the Delaware on that fateful night and do the impossible over the great empire. All that being said, I'm reminded of an army poster that I had at work that said, we're able to sleep peacefully in our beds at night because good and honorable men stand ready to do violence in our behalf. And in, in that regard, my point is saying, I'm a passive person. I'm verbally abusive. And Matthew covers that right there. Uh, so I'm not innocent of anything. But I firmly believe that if God did not sanction just cause, uh, then we would already be under Muslim rule from Islamicism 2,000 years ago or, or whatever. That, so, you're, you're, let me direct that as your question sure. as if this were jeopardy. What sure. if? <laughs> <laughs> and that's a great question. It's an absolutely great question. I want to I say this. Uh, <coughs> I think part of part of our issue is that we have a dual citizenship. We have a citizenship to the kingdom of God, and we happen to have a right now we happen to have a citizenship for the ones in this room in the United States of America. My problem is with allegiances. Who who are we who do we pledge allegiance to? Here here's a problem I have. When I grew up in a Southern Baptist church, I remember going to vacation Bible school, pledging allegiance to the American flag pledging allegiance to the Christian flag and pledging allegiance to the Bible. And I'm thinking, okay, now wait a minute. In retrospect, if allegiance means this is my this is my above all responsibility, this is what I put before anything else, how can you pledge allegiance to three things? Hang on a second. Are you saying sure. that God doesn't stand at the Pledge of Allegiance? <laughs> <laughs> well, he doesn't cross his heart anyway. <laughs> the Pledge of Allegiance is one nation under God, and that's why that argument is so profound. Because but, I do perceive it to be under Almighty God, not under Obama or Bush or other. I think the problem, and this is, you know, once again, this is my perspective. I think the problem with that is that um, when this nation was founded, you know, what, 1700s, my part of saying, okay, if this was founded as a Christian nation, what part was Christian? Was it Manifest Destiny where we wiped out the Native Americans? Was it slavery in the 1850s where we, you know what I'm, you know what I'm saying? You can, the problem is God did not give us a carte blanche and say, here's the new Israel, America. I don't think God did that. The, I think that if you read Paul's letters, especially Romans and Galatians, where he talks about the integration of Jew and Gentile, male and female, slave and free, before that time, 
Israel had been called as a light to the Gentiles. They were supposed to be a light to the nations. They weren't supposed to be this group of people that were this exclusive, we're it, we're God's chosen people, and you're second, you're second class citizens. They were to be a light to the Gentiles. Their lives were to lead other people into the family of God. They failed at that mission. Jesus embodied that mission, and he succeeded. So that Paul comes along and says there's a new Israel. But guess what? It doesn't have national borders anymore. The new Israel is a transnational, international, transracial community of the people of God that live under the rule and are allegiant to Jesus. So does, does America have a right to fight its enemies? That's not my call. Because I, I might be a citizen of this country, but my allegiance <coughs> is to the kingdom of God. That's why I'm making a clear distinction between political pacifism and Christian pacifism. I have no call to political pacifism. I have no interest. I mean, of course, I have an interest simply because I want to know what's going on in the world. But I have no interest in telling the United States government what to do about terrorism. That's not my call. My call is simply, as a member of the body of Christ, to call members of the body of Christ to what their King Jesus says to do. So when those two allegiances conflict, and this is the, the story of the first 300 years of Christianity is all about this. Are you, is your allegiance to Caesar? When they, when they said Jesus is Lord, that's a very innocuous statement to us. That's a statement that's like, Jesus is Lord. You know, I love Jesus. Merry I worship Christmas. Jesus. Merry Christmas. Right. right. Jesus is Lord in the first century was a political statement. Because the, the Evangelion, or the good news of the Roman Empire, was that Caesar is Lord. That was the proclamation. And so as you put your pinch of incense to Caesar on the altar to make your sacrifice to Caesar, you are declaring Caesar is Lord. So here comes this little band of misfit disciples from, from uh, Israel, and they're saying Jesus is Lord over against Caesar. That was a political upending of Caesar and saying Caesar's word in the world is not the final word. And in doing that, they were declaring allegiance to a different king. And it ended up costing them, most of, many of them, it cost them their lives, their families' lives, their property. <coughs> but they saw that as the only viable alternative if they were going to live in the kingdom of God. Simon. Um, I wanted to bring up the question I asked you earlier. Um, because I do think it is, it does have to be kind of a, a very personal decision. This is not about what? Speak up. You're saying this can't be about institutional or governmental sure. edicts. This is about my personal relationship with the people around me, those with whom I have contact. Um, and you can have a million different examples and crazy just examples of, you know, just the most extreme things if somebody comes into my house and kills my wife, blah, blah, blah. But like you said, I think those things aren't necessarily useful because looking into the future, we're basically fantasizing about what may happen. We don't know what's going to happen. We don't know what we're going to be like when we get into that situation. Will there be a way out? Who knows? Right. Ultimately, I don't know, so I can't say what I'm going to do. But my question, and I think <coughs> this is where I have the biggest issue, it appears, and it, 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 maybe it's just a feeling that I have, that it's when you say total nonviolence, 
and say something like, I will not act in such a way that hurts any person at any time, that that statement seems legalistic to sure. me sure. because I'm making a kind of a teetotal kind of statement. In the same way that I would say, I will never drink. Sure. I will not do this. I will not do that. This is who I am, and I will not do this. And it's... And I've, the reason, and maybe it's just my background. Sure. When I got out of college, I did a lot of fighting, trained in mixed martial arts, had an incredible relationship with people with whom I was being extremely violent. Sure. Very violent, full contact. I got the crap kicked out of me all the time. I had a great relationship with those people. What that taught me was how to be nonviolent. Mm. It allowed me to control a, an incredible rage inside my heart. Because I knew that I was dangerous. And so I would, instead of going into a fight, I would now back off of the fight. Sure. Because I know I'll hurt somebody. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So in, in one sense, it makes sense to me that a person that engages purposefully in containing that sort of violence is able to walk away much more easily. Sure. To protect other people by saying, back up. I'll, I'll protect you, but... We're gonna we're gonna move away from this. We're gonna move toward nonviolence by 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 knowing it, by by controlling it in a sense. Um, and again, this can't be institutional. That has to be personal. As an institutional thing, well, our government protects the world in some ways against incredible evil that would wipe out good in a lot of ways. But I think, on a personal level, do you think? It is legalistic, or am I going at that in the wrong direction? I, I think we've got to define what legalism is. Okay. To me, here's what legalism is. Legalism is making God's love contingent upon whether or not I follow his prescriptions. Okay. Okay? That's a great definition. So Say that again. Legalism, I'm, I'm just coming off the cuff here. Legalism is, is basically God. making God's love contingent upon if you follow his code of ethics, his prescriptions, whatever. That's beautiful. Great. We, we ought to write that. Somebody write that down. God's love. Oh, we're recording it. That's good. So here, here's the difference for me. <coughs> Jesus' ethical standard is ridiculously hard. It is ridiculously hard. It's not legalistic. Because he's not saying God's love depends on whether or not you do this. Right. Wow. He's saying God loves you whether or not you do this. And that's why you do it. Because you're imitating God's love, which is unconditional. And God's love only shines in light of him loving his enemies. That's why that whole thing in Jesus' Jesus's diatribe in the Sermon on the Mount about if you love those who love you, what does that profit you? He's saying anybody does that. That's not love. You can only see true love where there's someone you shouldn't love. You can only see um, you can only see true giving where there's a real need. You know what I mean? If I give to you, and this is why Jesus says, when you give, don't expect anything in return. Because if I give, John John Caputo, um, a, a great philosopher, talks about the gift a lot, the impossibility of the gift. In our society, the gift is impossible. I cannot really give a gift in our society because when I give you a gift, guess what? You immediately, your will start turning as to how you're going to pay me back. It reminds me of Big Bang Theory the other night. Somebody gives Sheldon a gift. Somebody can appreciate that. And Sheldon goes, 
Why did you do this to me? Exactly. Don't you know that now I have to figure out what your gift is worth and then I have to... And That's the truth of the matter is that's how we all are. We all are that way. We're not overt about it. But every one of us, when someone gives us something, we're automatically, if it's not then, it's later, thinking, how can I pay that person back? Whether we pay them back through kind words, whether we pay them back with another gift, whatever it is. So it's the impossibility of the gift in our society. Jesus is saying that the only way you can give an actual gift is when you have absolutely no expectation of return and you give to people that can't pay it back. That's why he says when you have a feast, don't invite your friends, don't invite your buddies, don't invite the rich. He said invite people that are absolutely poor, invite people that can't pay you back, and then your reward will be great because that's the only true gift you can give. And I don't want to hang out with them. And I don't know. And, and I understand that. This is this is where the <laughs> this is where we need like like a few months instead of two hours because because the community of the kingdom of God, um, I believe. And once again, this is something I'm I'm. Am I trying to live this out? Yes. Am I perfect? Absolutely not. But I'm realizing more and more when you read the book of Acts and it talks about they had everything in common and all this kind of stuff. They also, one of the big distinctions was this thing about hospitality. Here's the craziness about hospitality. We call, like I remember the church, the, the church I was a pastor at, we talked about people with the gift of hospitality. And what we meant by that was someone that invites all of us church members over to their home for tea and coffee, right? But that's not at all the New Testament definition of hospitality. The New Testament, Testament definition of hospitality is taking people in your home you absolutely don't know and who absolutely can't pay you back. Is that scary stuff? Yeah. Absolutely. Is that what the kingdom of God looks like? I think so. It sounds like suicide. It sounds like suicide. And in many ways, Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you take up your cross, you deny yourself. If you seek to find your life, you'll lose it. If you seek to lose your life, you'll find it. I didn't say this stuff. Oh, man. I don't know. It's not. You, you, no, you're not allowed to quote Jesus anymore. Okay. Now, move on to the next question. Just out of curiosity, because, I mean, I understand what you're saying, but I think we kind of got away from my initial question. Sure. Right? Sorry. Can we speak up, please? Sorry. We got, I just said we got away from the initial question. The Jesus Christ... I would assume you maybe, maybe you don't agree. I think you probably do. Uh, in the Old Testament, when you have those appearances of Christ, the angel of whatever, however, however it's phrased, I can't Theophanies, the angel of the Lord. And, when he wrestles with Jacob, for instance. Um, and I think that this is an example of, in a sense, a, a somewhat violent act that is used to move someone into a direction where he's actually doing something good. While being very violent, he he cripples the man for the rest of his life. The man walks on the cane for the rest of his life. I, I er, just a moment ago, I saw the, the flaw in my earlier argument. The point that I was making was that every single time I was talking about people that I was friends with, that I was being violent with, in a sense, and so it's this <coughs> thing. I think what you were saying is the, the there is no legalism because what you're discussing is nonviolence. Primarily against those people who you have absolutely no interest in. These are your enemies, quote unquote, and those are the people who require total nonviolence at a personal level because it is the opposite of every 
of every thought or, or anything that I would possibly come up with. If this person comes at me, what's my first instinct is to fight back. So I have to fight that instinct. Yeah. Is that where you're going? With well, that, that, that thing we talked about earlier with Romans 12, yeah. the end of Romans 12 about if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. Never overcome evil with evil, but overcome it with good. Only ever treat your enemies good. He starts that, and I'm glad you pointed that out, Josh, because I have not really made that connection. But he starts that whole passage by saying, you have to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This is not a natural instinct. It's not. That's right. This goes against everything you've ever been taught, everything you've ever just even if you weren't taught it instinctually what you feel it goes against it all and I'll be the first to admit that because I have while I'm very much in this in this journey with you I've agonized over this stuff I didn't I didn't read Jesus's words and go I think I'm going to be nonviolent now I mean it was a struggle because I went are you kidding me he's saying this stuff really he means this so should David apologize to Goliath and should he have just walked down there and let Goliath cut off his head Oh, uh, the Old Testament. Do you want, do you want to open up the Old Testament? Yeah, go, hey, before you go, can, can you hold that for 30 seconds? You have two kids. Yeah. Boys, girls? Two and three, boys. Both boys. Mm-hmm. Two and three. I personally, at that age, put on boxing gloves, and they put on boxing gloves. Sure. I've got three sons, Noah, Adam, Elijah. And I'm not getting rid of our boxing gloves now. No. But, what, no, no, no. What you're talking about, and I meant to bring that up, the mixed martial arts and all that kind of stuff. I'm probably the biggest Carolina Panther football fan you'll ever meet. I love football because it is a – is there – can you say there's violence in football? I mean, people get hurt and all that kind of thing, right? Yeah, I mean, that kind of thing. But is it a, um, is it a thing where I'm trying to – it is a game, a controlled environment game, where we all have this common goal, right? It's not a – I'm not talking about that at all. That's a whole – that's on a whole different plane, I think. But I, I wrestle with my boys all the time. We do that kind of thing. That's not a. I think that's a whole different discussion. And I want to read that story about Jacob and, and, and Israel. That, that wrestling match again. I, 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 I never. I've never read that story and thought that was a violent fight. I read that story and think. I read that story and I think of. I think of, I think of that like me and my kids wrestling. No, no, my sons and I. Shante says it every time. Josh, you know how this is going to end. I know, baby. But Josh, you know it's going to end. You know how it's going to end. I, I, I know. But it's, and, and the way it's going to end is somebody's going to be crying. But, but I don't, I don't feel like that is evil. I feel like that's a. a they were wrestling. They were fighting. Physical wrestling. They were fighting. And I'm not. I'm not arguing with that. Oh, it I'm saying, I'm, but I don't see that as a as a one person wanting to kill or oh, no. c- cause evil no, to the other. All right, Jeannie. Said someone dies at the end of it because that's that. You need to define that right now. I, I guess my my definition of violence is when when my goal is to to. To hurt or to remove you from the face of the earth, or my, my, my I'm doing it in an act of anger, and my point is to destroy you. I, I think that's a, a, a different. Good, that's pretty extreme, because I've gotten into people, <clears throat> and my aim was not to remove them from the planet and destroy them, like I, body. But, that, but that's the. I'm talking about the difference between that being the heart of it, and when, when I'm wrestling with Noah and Adam, I'm never thinking. I think I can kill them, or I think I can hurt them. <laughs> no, it's fun. Yeah. I think what, what you're saying, uh, just, to, just to bring up, I mean, 
just one thought about it is kind of like with the NFL last year. For all you guys that are NFL fans, um, you remember with the Saints, the whole thing that happened with the Saints. Um, this past year, how there was all, you know, Sean Payton was suspended for the year because basically the uh, – the, they had been taking out bounties on people. They had literally been paying people thousands of dollars to take people out of games. He was removed from football for life. Yeah, the defensive coordinator is yeah, yeah, gone, and Sean Payton, the head coach, is out for a year. So even in the NFL, they were recognizing that there is a huge difference between a game and putting a bounty on somebody's head and trying to hurt them. Oh, they were they were attempting to put the quarterback out of commission. Right. They, I mean, they put uh, bounties on Cam Newton and all, all these different quarterbacks. But I'm saying that even within the NFL, they recognized that there was a huge difference between a game and trying to hurt somebody. And that's what I think you're talking about, is this trying to injure somebody or hurt somebody. That's a great example. I agree. Versus, yeah. There are so many hands and so many people are asking, but Jeannie's been waiting the longest. I'm trying hard to, to get to you. as you, I'm, I'm trying to get there. Sorry. Go ahead. Jeannie or Craig, somebody? I don't know um, what took place in the first session, so I don't know what you discussed. That's all right. Um, I'm of the Anabaptist position, and if anybody really wants to see it, I don't know what you did, I don't know what you said earlier, but Roxy Cavey yeah. has an excellent video on separation of the church and state. That's great. <coughs> Crazy name, but he has an excellent, I don't know if you remember. I love Bruxy KV, yeah. Love his stuff. Um, I've come to the place where I have to first see that I'm a citizen of the kingdom of God. Then I'm a citizen of this country. And I think you can see a little clear distinction of that in Romans 13 and 14. Yes. I don't know if you discussed that. Yes, we did. Romans 12 13. through 14 is very, yeah. Right. Um, now I have a husband who served in the military. <laughs> and personally, I could not be part of the military. I could be a um, conscientious objector. Sure. What is it? Objector? Yeah. yeah. Someone that serves. You know. Do you see that there's a place for people to serve in the military as a Christian? I'm going to be honest with you, and I, you guys might have my head for this, but not. I'm not judging anybody, but I personally can't see a role for Christians in the military that is not conscientious objection. Um, once again, I think, you know, we're talking about this dual citizenship and our primary citizenships to the kingdom of God and to live by the ethical standard of the kingdom of God. So for me, when I, you know, I think that I am, the whole Romans 13, <coughs> I think is about saying you need to serve your country insofar as you can without transgressing the direct commands of Scripture. So, I, you know, I think, I'll give you a perfect example, Origen. There was a man, there was a, man um, a guy that was very much against Christians in the first 300 years of Christianity, around 200, a man named Celsus. And Celsus' uh, Celsus' basic complaint against Christians was, you won't fight in our military, you won't defend our country, what are you guys worth? You guys are a stigma on our society. And Origen wrote him a letter, great theologian, controversial theologian, but great theologian, Origen wrote Celsus a letter basically saying, we do a greater service to your country, and our heart is to serve your country insofar as, our, as it doesn't transgress the teachings of our Lord. Because at the end of the day, our allegiance has to be to Jesus. So we will pray for your country. We will help the poor in your country. We will set up social programs in your country, but we will not fight for your country. But to add to that, there is something inborn in the genetics of a man to stand up and 
fight. Uh, okay. I don't mean this protect. Okay. Yeah, protection. I agree with that. And I think I think we are called to protect those that don't have a voice. Yeah, I absolutely. It have to be a violent way. Here's our problem, though. This is. Justice. I mean, we can see that with you know Martin Luther King. Absolutely. And that type of. MLK is one of my heroes. But here's a man who refused to stand by and watch injustice on innocent people. But he did something about it. And and my question is, what is the braver thing to do? To walk into a crowd like one of the Black Panthers under Malcolm X with a gun to get your way? Or to walk into Birmingham, Alabama, the heart of segregation, the heart of white supremacy, without any weapons and walk down the street knowing it's probably going to cost you something. Yeah. Um, I, I don't, I, you know, Gandhi said, and, and, you know, Gandhi's not my example because, like I say, Gandhi was more You can't bring up Gandhi because, <laughs> He's because hell. you know Gandhi's in hell today. <laughs> so I'm told. I'm sorry. That, if, if you don't understand that sarcasm, go on. Um, but, but Gandhi was very much into political pacifism, but he did it in the way of Jesus. <coughs> and, um, you know... Gandhi said, which I completely agree with him, he said that, um, that what he was talking about was not cowardice because cowardice is worse than violence. I agree with Gandhi there. Cowardice is worse than violence, I believe. So I'm not talking about cowardice. I'm talking about something that puts you directly in the way as a human shield, if necessary, of violence, but refuses to reciprocate that violence yourself. You know, I... I, I haven't thought about saying this until now, but I think one of the bravest belief systems that I've ever heard is this is speaking this nonviolent belief system. Because like you said, and it's true, you talk about nonviolence, nothing, nothing makes people rage. Nothing makes people more angry than that. I, on our podcast, we have we have examined hell in a totally new way, atonement in a totally new way. I say new, I think it's old, but new to a lot of people. Exactly, right. The inspiration of scripture. I I expect my inbox on my email (laughs) to just fill up with hate email. And I tell you, it doesn't happen. And then we talk about nonviolence. And oh my goodness, do we get the comments. And that's what, to me, because it's all of these other things, as I said before, are very ethereal. Yeah. They're very otherworldly. Yeah. What I believe about Scripture is pretty innocuous to my day-to-day life, yeah. right? What I believe about atonement and hell, they don't really have a daily effect on me. What we're talking about now nothing, is nothing, rubber meets the road The stuff, next thing that will get me punched in the nose will probably be a nonviolent statement in my life. <laughs> I just know it. Okay, Josh, Bill, Josh. Bill let's, let's go to Bill, and then we'll come to Ben. Josh, in regard to how our government fights our enemies, I am thankful every day for our military. Amen. Because without them, I am truly horrified about thinking of how we would be living today. Because our enemies would pounce on us in a heartbeat, and we would not know what freedom was anymore. Amen. <laughs> we would be treated yeah. horribly. I completely understand that. I think that, and I, I respect what you're saying, and I respect the bravery that it takes a soldier to pick up a gun and to go into battle. I respect that bravery. I disagree with him tremendously, but I respect the bravery. But I'm going to say this. For Without seven... Them, we would all be doomed. 
For 1,700 years, Christians lived without democracy. Two-thirds of Christians in the world today live without democracy and give faithful witness to the message of Jesus. My, my ability to speak, while I am thankful for to live in a country where I have freedom to get up and say this kind of stuff without expecting somebody to pull out you know, a rifle, I'm thankful for that. But I believe as a believer in Jesus that my call is to speak this stuff regardless of whether or not I'm safe. So while I'm thankful for safety, personal safety and security is not my highest aspiration. It's not my highest goal. And it's not what I'm to, to really be about at the end of the day. I'm to be about the kingdom of God, which usually will put me. I mean, Jesus, Paul said to Timothy, all who live godly in Christ Jesus will, will suffer persecution. Thank God we live in a free country. But my freedom the, the the freedom we have here is political. The freedom we have here is political freedom. The freedom we have in Jesus is a totally different kind of freedom that doesn't rely on personal safety and security. Okay, we're going to Ben, then Bill, and then Ralph. Okay, we're going to go to Ben, Gandhi then Bill, then Ralph. Gandhi said one time in a rally when talking about how they were going to deal with the British, he said, "We will kill no one." He said, "They may." They may beat my body, they may put me in prison, they may torture me, they may kill me, and then they'll have my dead body, not my obedience. Now, the fact of the matter is, Gandhi was fighting against the British, and as you said earlier, it was a, quote-unquote, air quotes, Christian nation. There were people in Britain who were children of God, who could understand the spirit of God coming through that fight of Gandhi saying, we are going to do this God's way. Yeah. Okay. Then you've got the Nazis trying to kill every Jew sure. in, in, in Europe. I'm sorry. They were controlled sure. by a demonic spirit. You are not going to deal with those people in a nonviolent way sure. because they are controlled by the Prince of Darkness himself. Amen. You are not going to deal with them in nonviolence. Now, I, I get the whole nonviolence thing, but you have to understand it's situational. You can't say across the board that God is never going to call you to nonviolence. If a man is raping a woman and you come up on it, if you say you're going to deal with it nonviolently, what are you? You're a monster. I'm just... I'm and, and, and if, if you've and read... I, I just want to say, I never, and I, I know you were poking fun in the first service, I never meant to back you into a corner with that question, and I know I'm oh, I, the three people that has asked you that question, but... I really, I am. I am trying to take it to the end conclusion of what you're saying. Yeah. Are you saying you believe in this and I, ideology and of nonviolence so much that when, let's just say that violence is your only option, are you saying you believe in this ideology so much that you refuse to defend the innocent? And Ray and I would differ here. Yeah. I, I would say, I would. I have a gun in my house. I, I wrote an, a blog a while back about about guns, and I said, I don't want anybody to know if I've got a concealed permit, a concealed handgun permit, because I want you to always wonder. I, if somebody's raping my wife, I will scream, yell, fight. I, I, will, I, will, I will choose my thought process on this is I'm going to rip this guy away, stop him, Try to handcuff him. Try to control him. Try to try to use my my loud voice and big belly to say, "Dude, don't mess with me." 
I would get I would get violent. My goal would be not to kill this man. My goal would be my goal would mean to stop him. We got to go to Bill. So let me let me just answer this. My goal would be to my goal would be to stop him, move him out of the situation, and and share grace and truth I have a with problem him. Problem really quick. I'm just gonna say this and I'll shut up. I feel like you're saying your goal is to stop him but not kill him. How, why isn't your goal to protect someone who is being harmed, to, right. to stop evil? Because I can't because protect her forever. Let's, let's not split hairs about, well, Jesus was fighting for us nonviolently. God fights for us. And on the cross, God was fighting a battle. He was defeating evil in the universe for all time. That, I think here's, here's the question, though. We're, we're talking about, like we were talking about earlier with animals, violence towards animals. Where We're talking about human violence. You never once see Jesus descend into human violence. Was, was the cross a battle? Absolutely. The, for the first thousand years, the, the main theory of the atonement was not this penal substitution stuff of God beating up his son so he didn't have to beat up you. It was the Christus Victor view which said that, that Jesus was fighting a battle on the cross, but it wasn't, Paul, Paul makes this clear, it wasn't against flesh and blood. And any time our battle descends into flesh and blood... Now, am I saying what I would do, what you would do? You know, I'm setting that aside for a moment because that's where the emotions get involved, and I understand that, and we need to talk about that. But I'm saying right here what we're trying to say is, I guess it's the WWJD thing, which is really what our our whole um, aspiration is, is really supposed to be. If Jesus is our example, if he's our model, if he's our Lord, then I think we have to look at you know what he, what he would do. Um, so the question of Hitler—that's the one I really want to talk about because that's the that's the biggie, right? I mean, that is he is the prototype for evil in the world. Yeah. I get that. Um, there, you know, there's all sorts of there's all sorts of ways that people were fighting Hitler nonviolently. Corey Tinboom, you know, went to she went to a, a prison camp and watched her entire family die because she fought the Nazis, but she didn't do it through violence. She hid Jews in her home. She, uh, she helped them escape. She did anything she could to put herself in the way of the Nazis and victims, the Jewish victims. So she probably, while all these other people who held to this ideal, and that's why I want to be careful. I'm not trying to turn, I'm not trying to create an ideology. I get what you're saying, because when you create an ideology, then nonviolence becomes our Lord. Yes. I'm not saying that. I'm saying Jesus is our Lord, and therefore, but here's what happens when you create an ideology. When you make an ideology out of something, you're trying to prove that that is the best way in a utilitarian sense, that it's the most pragmatic, practical, results-driven way to go. That's what an ideology is all about. I am not for a second under the illusion that nonviolence is the most practical way to go. Not for a second. Um, so I don't want to. I don't. I'm not trying to, up, you know, stand, sit up here and deceive you guys into thinking that I'm somehow saying that nonviolence is going to be more effective than violence. Bombs are always going to be more effective than nonviolence in the short term. In the long term, let's think about let's think about this just war that was carried on against the Nazis and against Japan. Let's not forget about Japan. In this just war, we dropped atomic bombs on 100,000 innocent lives in Nagasaki and Hiroshima. And that's a just war? That, that's what I'm saying. The problem, the problem with this whole thing is there's always going to be innocent people that <coughs> suffer. Always. 
in a time like that. You, I, I, the to- dropping the atomic bomb is not part of my argument because that sure. was one of the most evil acts in human history. Sure, killing a hundred thousand people who were unarmed and not part of the fight. Sure, that was that was that was us acting like Hitler. Right, but I'm I'm just I'm just saying that's what I'm, I'm saying. Those violence. If we, if we don't take things to their logical conclusion, there are there, I, I agree that there are times where we have to be nonviolent, but there are times you can't say that we could nonviolently stop the extermination of God's children. That, I think the problem is when you look at when you look at the Romans 12 thing. Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. What that's saying is there is no such thing as violence that doesn't escalate. Because when you, when you separate the atomic bomb from World War II, you can't do that. You can't do that because that was the natural outcome. You get what I'm saying? Hey, let me give an example. Early on in Genesis, do you remember when Cain kills Abel? And he says, he says to the Lord, Lord, they're going to kill me now. People are going to come after me. And, you know, the, the seal is put on him. You know, if anybody, if anybody does anything to Cain, it'll come back on him sevenfold, right? Okay. A few chapters later, you get to Lamech. So Cain kills his brother. Vengeance is promised sevenfold. You get to Lamech just a few generations later. And Lamech, it says, simply, uh, a man simply hit him. Didn't kill him, just simply hit him. He said, and he killed him for that. And he said, well, if Cain's vengeance is sevenfold, let mine be seventyfold. <coughs> so already we see an escalation in violence. Then by the time we get to Genesis 6... And we can get into this because I know Genesis, you know, the whole flood story, that's a big question when it comes to nonviolence. What the heck was that about? But in Genesis 6, one of the, one of the reasons it gives, the main reason it gives for the flood, the main reason is violence. It says that the earth was filled with violence. violence. So what happened? The entire earth's destroyed. Violence can only escalate. There is no, here's the problem. We, we want to be able, we want to be able to pull the trigger and put the gun down and walk away. It does, doesn't work that way. Violence is its own. There's a trajectory of love, and there's a trajectory of violence. And once you're on that trajectory, you can't lead anywhere but to more love or to more violence. I think that's logically the only way it goes. We've got to go to Bill, but I, I want to remind, I want to put a plug in for my favorite movie right now. I'm not talking about Pretty Woman, Ben. I'm talking about Gran Torino. Man, oh, I love Grand Torino. Yes, I'm with you. I love Man, Grand I love that movie. Okay, Bill, good. All right. In about 45 minutes, uh, <coughs> you have my questions. Just to preference this, I don't disagree with you 100%. Sure. I agree with you about 10%. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate right. that. Yeah. Our founding fathers came from tyranny of a... Of a <coughs> and they came over here to have freedom of worship die. Most of them were, were Protestants. 98% of them were Protestants. When there was the Constitution, it says that uh, we, we have life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. They weren't saying that, that God gave us all those. They said they didn't come from the government, but they were God-ordained. So God ordained this, com- this country. Sure, we, did, we had racism, we killed all the Indians, and we did a lot of wrong things. That don't mean God didn't ordain this country to be here. I'm not sure how old you are, but I remember growing up during the Cold War and hearing about Reagan and what an evil man he was because he built up our nuclear arsenal. He believed in peace through strength. He, he didn't ever want to use a nuclear weapon, but he, he would if he had to. When, when uh, Germany was taking over the world, we had the policy of isolationism. We were over here, we were far enough away from everybody, we didn't ourselves. Eventually, Japan came over here and bombed Pearl Harbor, drew us into the war. Right. Okay? Hundreds of thousands of people got killed in Nakasima, Nakasima and uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Hiroshima, I'm yes. sorry. I'm trying to get all this out real fast. Sure. I don't know how much time. That was terrible. 
but that ended the war also. You know, I believe there's godly men in the military. And you were talking about dual citizenship. I believe they do have dual citizenships, but I believe that there's a difference between killing and murder. The soldiers don't hate the the, <coughs> the terrorists. They don't, they don't even know them. But they're protecting our freedoms and our rights and our liberties so we can sit here and discuss this and I can talk about our government, our former government. I can say whatever I want because we have the freedoms. A lot of people miss that because they don't realize what it is to grow up in a, in a world that's threatened by war. Sure. You know, we're on the brink of war every day. The United States is one of the few countries that has never went into another country and just taken over the country just for their their the, the, the fact of taking it over. We've always been there to protect. I, I see Josh Hayden. With the exception of the first time. Okay. <laughs> okay. We, we, we're not a aggressive country. You know, we have nuclear weapons all over the world to protect countries and protect the evil from going into those countries and taking out off. I, so you got Stalin, who would have taken over the whole the whole sure. world if he could have. Sure. Hitler. There's been other people throughout the period of time, but we have protected those people. Sure. Through violence when it happened, but we did it through strength. And I believe that if somebody comes into my house, I'm not going to worry about shooting them in the leg or try to shoot them in the arm or wrestle them to the ground. If they infringe on my rights, my personal property, which that's my house, I'm going to protect my family. And they're probably going to get killed. Sure. I mean, I'm not going to sit there and wonder, well, you know, I, maybe I can talk to them. Maybe, you know, if a terrorist comes in here right now with a, a bomb strapped to them, I'm not going to sit there and negotiate with them. If I have a gun, I'm going to shoot them. If I was sitting in that theater where that guy came in during Batman and shot everybody, somebody <coughs> would have had a gun and used violence, there would have been 20 less people dead. Right. We battle not flesh and blood, but powers and principalities. And sure. whether it be an image of America or Israel against Iran and all of that, or us and the Indians, we also assume that the Indians had a noble civilization. They raped and plundered each other just like every other culture since the fall of Adam and Eve. Sure. And, and like I told you at the beginning, Thomas Hobbes, the natural state of man is war within ourselves and everyone outside ourselves. It's, it's a natural thing. Do we, do we teach our children? You know, these little kids sitting over here playing, they're going to take the other person's toy. You're taught to be polite and considerate and loving that is not, we are not born good and we become bad. We are born through the flesh, into the flesh, and we learn to be born again into a higher calling and a higher spirit. But if you, if I come in and somebody's raping my wife, I hope I can sneak up on them and put a bullet in their head and say, did you get what you wanted? And then when you call the police, that you're calling the police to come and, and maybe act violently. Great. Put it off in them. That, that's great. We've got we've got about four or five different issues here. I appreciate I appreciate everything you're saying. And everything. Let me just say everything you guys are bringing up are absolutely valid, and I want to address I them. Agree. And when I and when I address them, I'm not saying I have all the answers, but I'm saying where I'm at on this. Um, several things. First of all, as far as America being founded as a Christian nation, I think we've got to. We've got to differentiate the word Christian and nation. I don't think those two can ever be the same. I don't think there is such a thing. I don't think, I think when Paul, you know, talks about Jesus bringing the body of Christ, the new Israel as one new man, Gentile, Jew, all these different things, male, female, all that kind of stuff. He's basically, the whole book of Romans is about how God has gotten rid of the national borders and God's people are found on both sides of the ocean. God's people are all around this world. And so you, you can't, um, a nation can't turn their cheek, right? A nation can't turn the other cheek. 
a nation is not necessarily called to do. Oh, we're doing it now. Well, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a whole other issue. But um, that I'm not. I'm not calling nations. I'm not calling militaries. I'm not calling governments to do anything. I have no say. I don't want to have any say in what goes on in the White House. I don't want to have any say. Is that stuff important? Well, yeah, in the grand scheme of things, I'm sure it is. But my call as a, citizen of, as a citizen of the kingdom of God, I look at it as the word ambassador that Paul uses. He uses this word ambassador, which basically, basically speaks of, I don't know if you guys have been to Washington, D.C. and the different embassies, but I remember when I went to an embassy when I was a teenager, and as we went in there, I can't remember what country it was. It was an African country. But they told us, when you walk onto this property, you are literally in that country. This property belongs to that country. So this person, when you walk in here, this person that's an ambassador, they are actually living by the standards and moorings of that country, not the United States. Paul, using that word ambassador, was very purposeful and intentional, I think. He's saying God is setting up these ambassadors all throughout the world of the kingdom of God as leaven in the parable that Jesus talks about, the leaven, the yeast working its way through the dough little by little till it takes over the whole thing. God is placing these ambassadors in all these different countries around the world so that we can live as almost rogue agents of a different kingdom because the, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world cannot be the same. Let me, this, this is something that was fascinating to me. When Jesus is before Pilate, Remember, Pilate says, are you a king? And Jesus says, yes, but my kingdom is not of this world. And then what does he say? He, he, he gives a demonstration as to how you'll know his kingdom is not of this world. He says, because if it was of this world, then my followers would fight for me. But my kingdom is not of this world, and therefore they don't. He's actually saying that the, the earmark of his kingdom, in that situation with Pilate, he's saying the earmark of my kingdom is that my followers aren't fighting for it, which is totally the antithesis of every other kingdom in this world. Our nation states are defined, our national borders are defined by personal safety and security. Well, do you think if everybody followed the non-violence way, they eventually have utopia? Well, here's, here's what I'm going to say. Once again, I'm not, I'm not advocating political pacifism. But I'll say this: and if why, ever, sorry, and sure. why not? Well, here, here's. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but sure. And, I, and with all due respect, but you, you keep you keep disassociating yourself from the political, right? And that's the problem. Well, now, here, here's that's, here's that's what the problem now. Our country has been. It is not what it was founded as. It has been taken over. If we do not get involved. If we do not get involved politically, <laughs> like Jesus did, like Jesus did get Je involved. Jesus didn't. He did not. Jesus he did not. Jesus never spoke about Caesar. He never spoke about uh, any of that. He set up an alternate outpost of the kingdom of God in the midst. He spoke truth to power. Yes, he did. To yes, the he did. And the Sadducees, and yes, he did. That's political. And, and yes, but Jesus is uh, uh, John Howard Yoder, great Anabaptist theologian. Um, wrote the, the kind of <clears throat> epic when it comes to nonviolence. And the title of it is The Politics of Jesus. I absolutely agree with you that Jesus' whole ministry was political. The difference is that he wasn't trying to bring in a politics to change the kingdoms of the world. He was bringing in an entirely new political system called the kingdom of God that was to completely revolutionize the world 
but not through the kingdoms of this world. Right, but if we listen to Paul, for example, and give Caesar whatever Caesar's, Caesar owns us now. That's the problem. And if we don't do something about Caesar, take take Jesus, yeah, you know, and be strong with a strong military as Christians, but stop sending our boys and girls into wars that are ridiculous. You see, we can be strong and at the same time follow our constitution, at the same time attempt to follow Jesus. What's our Magna Carta though? Is it the constitution or is it the ministry of Jesus? Which one is the lens through which we know? It's the king. No, they're mutual. That's what I'm saying. This is where I'm at. And and once again, I get passionate, but I don't want you guys to think I'm just like, you know, I've got two hours to try and say to you what I'm, (laughs) what, what Josh has brought me to, to, to try and get across. My thing is that following Jesus and following any version of the kingdom of this world, be it democratic, fascist, communist, or even Nazi, which was fascist. If, if any kingdom of this world, those are mutually exclusive. You cannot do one and do the other because one is all about personal safety and security, and it's just different theories of how we get there. And I'm going to just go home and drink the Kool-Aid. <laughs> Yeah, here's the here's the thing that I the the thing that I love about the yeast conversation is we we have two options we can either live we can live like we believe that our re- ultimate result is yeah it's gonna the world's gonna keep getting worse it's gonna keep getting worse and eventually God will come and rapture us out of here we can believe that dispensationalist. Sorry if you're a dispensationalist. That dispensationalist pile of baloney. Or we can believe that the yeast is growing. Right. And I believe the yeast is growing. Right. And I have hope that, that the yeast is growing and that the mustard seed will become. And I don't have any idea who's next. And I'm so sorry, but Ralph's been waiting. Go, Ralph. Okay. Uh, we tend to put all violence in one category of evil. <coughs> We've got to put it in two categories. We've got to put violence and evil and we've got a balance and controlled by God. And that would be the Augustinian argument of a just war, which I don't subscribe to. It's just like we're, we're always saying every time we talk of a gun, we're talking about something is violent. Well, how about talking of the mouth? It's violent too. Right. Oh, now there I totally agree with you. Gonna, sure. If we're going to try to do away with one, why not do away with both? We should. I think we should do away with both. I'm with you. I think that our call to live nonviolently, I think it's an economic call. I think it's a philosophical call. I, I, I think it's all inclusive. It's all, it embraces everything. Our economics, um, I don't think that we can live by the American dream and live in the kingdom of God simultaneously. We can live an act of violence. I have no idea what he said. <laughs> Go ahead, Bill. And then Jeannie. If we take your train of thought there and we just get rid of guns and we're not allowed to speak evil against anybody, then we have tyrants taking over the world. I didn't say get rid of guns. I'll be. I. I, I don't know about Ray, but every single time I will vote for the right to bear arms. I think the vision, the vision of the prophets. What I see in the vision of the prophets, and I see this over and over, Micah, Isaiah, talks about that the kingdom of God, that one of the earmarks of the kingdom of God, is that we will beat our swords into plowshares. That is, 
I mean, that that is so. I, yeah, I'm there. That was swords, um, right? Not guns. Right. Put well, down the, put down exactly the swords. Have pick up the, then, but <laughs> the clubs. You have a new earth. It's going to happen. Not, not here. Right, but but here's here's my question though. The kingdom is here. This is this is part of the thing. When Jesus came to Earth, what was the first message he proclaimed when he went about preaching? Repent. Change your mind. Change the way you've thought heretofore, because the kingdom of God is here. It's right Man, now. It's, it's here. among you. So, and, and Jesus, all of his parables are about this, this kingdom that starts like this, and it looks like insignificant, it looks ineffective, it looks impractical, it looks stupid. But when you let it grow, eventually you end up with new heaven and new earth. Janie? Um, I think we would be wise to get out of bed with the government. <laughs> the dream is not the Christian dream. Right. We were never guaranteed rights right. by Christ. We're, we're called to lay down our that, rights. That, yes, yes. Um, that, I don't mean being a doormat either. Right. Um, we see Romans 13 written to the Romans living under the most oppressive yes. government and corrupt government we probably have ever seen. But Paul is still saying to obey them. Yeah, submit. Submit okay. to those authorities. In other words, and what he, what he means when he means submit, let me just say this. <coughs> Jesus was a political scandal. The guy did so many illegal things. Paul was a political scandal. So, so here's, this, here's the irony. Paul's going around saying submit to governments, and then he's going to get him thrown in prison because he's not submitting. So what the heck is Paul meaning? Well, Paul, when, when he's saying submit to governments, he's saying you live in the kingdom of God. But don't try and overthrow what, don't try and overthrow them to make them into the kingdom of God. Whatever their rules are that you have to break, you go ahead and take the punishment. So Paul ends up with stripes all over his back. He ends up going into prison. He ends up shipwrecked. He ends up all these different things because he refused to fight their battles. But he still didn't. I, I am what I would call a Christian anarchist. Now, people hear the word anarchy, and they automatically assume that means just absolute free-for-all. That's not at all. The, the word anarchy simply means not the beginning or not the powers. So in other words, I believe, I believe that all governments are a contingent result of the fall. God, when he set up the nation of Israel, he, um, he said, I want to be your king. I want you guys to look different than the world looks. So I'm going to run the show. But what do they do? After a few years, they go ahead and they say, the, the prophet at the time, Samuel, they go, to, they go to Samuel and say, we want to be like the other nations. Give us a king. And what did the Lord say? You have sinned against me. I wanted to be your king. Basically, he's saying that human government, while at this point, uh, we don't, we don't have an alternative. We don't see anything else. Human government is a result of the fall. So for us to align ourselves with human government and to somehow think that we can turn human government into the kingdom of God, I think is a farce. And I think you're right. First Samuel 8, 8. I mean, I was going, I was saying, God, I... I, I'm struggling with this whole nonviolent thing. What about Joshua when they're going in there and they're, I mean, what about all that? And, and I felt like God directed me to First Samuel. He said, go read about when, when I was their king and they rejected me. Mm-hmm. And I said, okay. And, I mean, and so I go and I read there. And First Samuel 8, 8 says, 
something. I wish I had it memorized verbatim. This is one translation, maybe Josh's. But he says, from the time they left Egypt till now, they, they've been rejecting me. They've not been following me. And I went, whoa, that's earth shattering for me. Hey, we're out of time. I'm going to go to Derek and Jerry, and then we're going to be done. You started to say something, and you changed your mind. You can go to somebody else. Come on, Derek. Derek. See, we can live this way. We can think of, go how you're thinking. I'm starting to kind of agree with you. At the same time, when it comes to politically, you can still have a role politically, I think. And, and, you know, because I'm going to vote. Right. I'm, an, I'm totally against government. <laughs> it's evil. Now, personally, and this is, this is, I think, a personal conviction here. I, I don't vote. Um, that's not, that's a personal conviction. I'm not saying the rest of you guys shouldn't vote. Yeah. I'm saying for me, part of it is a personal statement to myself and a personal reminder not to put my faith and my trust in a political system. Um, that, that's a personal decision on my part. I'm not saying that Jesus tells you not to vote, but I personally think that so many times we've gotten your, your illustration of getting in bed with the government. I mean, it's exactly, it's exactly how I feel that we have, we have tried to mix the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. And we've come up ever since Constantine. If you go back and read and, and study Constantine, We've come up with this amalgamation that ends up compromising both. That's right. If it makes you feel any better, I'm going to vote, but my candidate probably, my candidate will not win. Our and probably are won't. Are you writing me? He, he probably won't even be on the ballot, right? <laughs> All right, Jerry, and we're done. Thank you for coming. I, I appreciate this, and I, I appreciate our motto that we can disagree with that. Absolutely. But I also want to say for anybody who wants to further investigate this, I appreciate your oh. desire to further the message of Fox's Book of the Martyrs. That rather than to draw down, we would burn at the stake singing praises to Almighty God instead of cursing the person who lit the fire. Hey, I, there is a I list. I appreciate what, what you're doing. I don't just I, I don't agree on all sure. this, but I appreciate what you're doing. And I just hope that if I ever come to that defining moment that I can have that faith in God that, that those who did die at yeah. the hands of people as martyrs in the peace which passes all understanding, that I will have that at that time. Yes. Also, when you get home, look up the sheepdog theory. Uh, ben was talking sheepdog. about people who stand in the forefront of protecting other people. The theory is we're all like sheep. Yeah. We don't like the sheepdog until the wolf comes. I've around. heard that. Yeah. I, I had a. So it's kind of that theory. Let, let me say just in, in regard to what you first said, I just want to thank all you guys. Do you realize that you're probably the only place I know of that I can come do this? I have not stepped into a church since 2006 when I stepped down as a pastor because I because I have lost because I lost faith in the institutional version of Christianity. To be quite honest with you, but I just want to thank you guys. Because, you know, I'll, I'll be honest with you, I was nervous coming here because I realized how this is, this is nuts and bolts stuff. And it's, and it's, um, it's hard. I've, I've struggled with this. It's radical. Um, so, so I just want to say, you know, whether or not we, whether or not we agree at the end of the day. I just love a place that I can, I mean, just like your son says, a place to talk. I love a place that we can come, we can dialogue about this stuff, and we can agree to disagree and do it in love. So I appreciate you guys. And the questions you're asking, 
these are great. I mean, this is this is the kind of stuff I've been asking. I, I think I've struggled with every single question that's been yeah. asked. In fact, some of some people have made an appeal, and I've gone. Oh man, again. I mean, there's all the. This is a hard, it's a hard, hard thing. Hey, there, there, there's a reading list if you want to hear. Uh, Ray brought this. Uh, there's probably 20 books on here, and I've only read three of them. So I'm excited about reading the rest of well, them. If you want a copy of this, it's here. This is just what I did. I, I hope this is okay with you guys. Some of you guys. I'm I'm a nerd, so I like to. When I get on a topic, I can't. I want to read everything about it. So I I, I didn't. You know, I know not everybody's going to be interested in this, but. What I did is I tried to put together a list of books that are about nonviolence as discipleship. And then, you know, for questions about the atonement, what the heck happened at the atonement if, if nonviolence is true? There's some books on nonviolent atonement and then hell, which is the ultimate question about the violence of God. What is if, if hell is real or if, if um, what about hell if God's nonviolent? So there's a list of books on here that kind of explain hell through a nonviolent lens. So. You got great points. Myth of a Christian Nation's on there. That's yeah. that was a watershed for me, definitely. I, the ones I, I yeah. Anyway, never mind. Hey, also here are notes for next Sunday. Next Sunday we're going to be talking about Genesis and Exodus. We're reading the Bible through the lens of Jesus. Uh, the first part of our conversation is titled "Whosoever Believeth in Genesis." Uh, <laughs> um, so if you want these notes, they're here. Uh, go ahead. I want to say one quick thing. You can say it. I heard. And you will come back. Oh, man. Hey, how many of you would like for Ray to come back? Man, I would love for you to come back. I would love for you to come back. <laughs> That's if I make it out alive today. Well, was that fun or what? <laughs> I thoroughly enjoyed myself at this place. I tell you, the people there at a place to talk were just so fun to talk to. They were so open, and yet they were so loving um, and you know, we had some really, we had some really passionate disagreements uh, as you, as I'm sure you well heard in the last hour and a half. And yet I have to say, these people just seemed so genuine to me. And in particular, two of the people that probably gave the most pushback, um, during that service were two of the people that I ended up liking the most. We got to stay and talk afterwards. And, um, I just found myself I had so many things in common with some of these people, and even though we passionately disagreed on the topic of nonviolence, I just loved them, and I could tell they loved me, and there was just this sense of just acceptance um, that was just so cool that you don't often see uh, in a context of such disagreement. So I, I just have to say kudos to Josh McDowell, kudos to the people at A Place to Talk. You guys keep up the good work. Really enjoyed myself. Hopefully, hopefully we can do that again sometime. Um, if you're in the Hickory area, the Hickory, North Carolina area, you ought to just go check it out. Just go one Sunday, sit in on the conversation. It is a lot of fun. Um, they're just so open. And Josh, I've gotten to know him over the last year. And he's just so open. He's just so open to hearing from the Lord in whatever form that takes, um, whether it be from a divergent voice that he never would have considered listening to before to uh, a voice that maybe he's heard a thousand times. He's just so open, and I just so appreciate his heart. So thanks, Josh, for the invite. Thanks, A Place to Talk, for being so accepting and so loving and such a great place to agree to disagree. Um I hope you guys enjoyed the podcast. I tell you, when I went home, probably for the last two months, which we did this about two months ago, for the last two months, I've thought of so many things that I wish I had said. And um, it was just such a neat format because as Josh and I were there, 
when we opened up the dialogue time, hands were flying up all over the place. And so as people would get half of a comment out before I could respond, somebody else was already on to the next thing. And so there were so many things that I wish I'd had an, had a chance to respond to or had a chance to delve into a little deeper. Um, but it was just such a neat time. Thoroughly enjoyed it. So I hope you guys will will join this conversation as well, this dialogue. You know this is something that we talk about a lot here on the podcast. Hopefully for some of you guys, this this might have served to clarify a little bit of at least where I'm coming from, and I think on many levels where Steve's coming from as well. But I, you know, we totally welcome your input, whether that's negative or positive, constructive, um, whether it's something that really helped you and, and helped clarify something for you, for you, or that you just went, gosh, you guys are out to lunch, love some of your other stuff, but I hate the nonviolent stuff. I totally understand. And uh, just thank you guys for being such a great spiritual community for me. I was just telling someone yesterday that I have so appreciated the podcast community because you guys at Beyond the Box are just such amazing people, not just amazing listeners who pat us on the back, amazing conversation partners. And that's what we so appreciate because Steve and I will be the first ones to tell you that we are on a journey. We have not arrived at the destination. We are very much in process on just about everything. And so it is so awesome to get your input and to get your feedback and to hear where you're coming from and what God's doing in your life, because it really ministers to me. And on many levels, you guys help to articulate some of the things that I've found it hard to find words for. So thank you for that. Really appreciate you guys. I'm going to give you the normal rigmarole. If you want to check us out on Facebook, you can go to facebook.com slash beyond the box. Our Twitter feed is twitter.com slash BTB podcast. You can go to our website, beyondtheboxpodcast.com. Um, you can leave a comment there, leave a question, leave an idea submission, leave anything you want. And while you're there, you'll also notice a widget on the right-hand side of the screen that says, call me. If you'll click that call me widget, you can type in your name and your phone number, hit connect, and it, you, our service will actually call you back so that you can leave a message for us that we can either play on the air or that, you know, just something that you want to make sure that we hear. Um, you can also call that number if you want to by dialing 626 626- 24 no box that's 626 246 6269 and when you're there it'd be great if while you're there if you just say hey my name is fill in the blank and I'm from fill in the blank and you're listening to beyond the box we would love to put that on the front end of our episodes we really enjoy hearing from you guys and making you guys a part of this episode as well so thank you so much for listening I know this was an extra long episode if you're listening to this while you're on the treadmill you're probably worn out by now so I'm going to go ahead and close it so that you can get off and uh, wipe the sweat off so thank you so much guys really appreciate each and every one of you and look forward to joining you next time on beyond the box (laughs) 